Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Delicious things to eat. The popcorn can't be beat. The sparkling drinks are just dandy. The chocolate bars and the candy. So let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Let's all go to the lobby. I'm a fan of classic movies. Welcome to Overlapping Dialogue, a podcast of audio commentaries dedicated to discussing cinema that fascinates us in a way we hope fascinates you. We're your co-hosts, Kyle and Levi Huffman. I'm Kyle. And I'm Levi. And here we are back for a little bit of, ooh, Spooktober. Ooh. Uh, Spooktober. As we said last week, we're not really a fan of that term. No. But, you know, we're going to, I think, I think I'm going to start saying it ironically so many times that I'm going to start saying it unironically after a certain yep. point. Uh, you don't have that problem, I don't think. You want to avoid the term. Well, I don't really causes. care about it either way. I kind of think it's dumb, but whatever. Here we are, though. So, By the way, real quickly, yeah. I want to say I'm a little under the weather yes. today. I don't have the uh, the you-know-what, but um, just sign us. The novel coronavirus? Problems. Yes, yeah. the novel. I, I've read it. Not a fan. Uh but Too long. Hasn't happened to me, so yeah. it's like I can't really connect. You know, not that I'm making fun. Very sad situation that we're in. Very Living scary. In. Yes. Uh, but yes. Speaking I just, of frights, I've got uh, our family has a lot of sinus problems. So yeah, in our in our uh, my uh, what you would call antecedents. Yes. But anyway, anyways, so blame it on me. Just man. know that. I apologize, but we'll work through it. Yeah, we'll be good. So last week we did a little Spooktober surprise special. Creep Show mm-hmm. from 1982, which is, of course, as we talked about, the brainchild of George Romero and Stephen King, two horror icons. If you've not listened and to Stephen that, King's real I recommend child do that in the film. Yes, his own Kyle, uh, his own Kyle, his, his own, own his Kyle, his no. Kyle, his own child, Joe Hill. <laughs> uh, his own Kyle. I don't know. Like, you know how everybody's like. You know when you're talking to someone, they're like, and it's someone like, it's like a a Steve. 
and you both know a mutual Steve. It's like, oh, no, no, my Steve, they'll say, as implying it. No, no, it's someone I'm, blah, blah, you know, closer to, whatever, to distinguish. Like, yeah, like, yeah. you know, no, no, Stephen King's Kyle. Maybe that's his, like, you know, accountant. Uh, maybe it's a literary agent, you know. He, but he's got his own Kyle somewhere, yeah, I'm a sure. a fan that stalked him for years. Who knows? Yeah, not me. Not me, no. definitely. Yes. Uh, anyway. Well, we're talking Screech Show. Yeah. Well, let me just also say, yeah. well, well, Misery, isn't that based on... Yes, that's I don't know if a stalking yeah, incident, well, but like a yes, weird obsession kind of, yes. with a, a fan had yeah, with him. more or less. Uh, better movie than book, by the way, actually. Uh, yeah. The book's good, but... Well, the movie, I mean, you know, there's just certain movies that have pairings that you would never immediately imagine that are just really good, like, and for that one, it's James Caan and Kathy Bates. Yeah. Those are two really great pairings to have. But Anyways, yeah. this episode is not about misery, though it is good. Or a creep show. But we will be putting ourselves through a sort of misery today, it should yeah, be said. That's true. Uh, with Funny Games from 1997. And Levi just today corrected me on how to say well, this filmmaker's name. I didn't know name. this. I didn't know this. You said forever it's Michael Haneke, but according to you, it it's, is. It's uh, Mikael Hanukkah. Hanukkah. Yes, Hanukkah. Like the holiday. The, the holiday, yes. Uh, he's Austrian, so his name is German. Um, I was actually just watching a video last night randomly from uh, cin- the Cinema Cartography, who usually put out really good, well, not usually, every video I've seen of them is good, uh, but they're on YouTube. But anyway, they they mentioned his name in passing about something, and I was like, oh, that's how you say that. And it's funny, because I just happened to watch it before this podcast. So, uh, But anyway, yes, it's Mikael Hanukkah. So, uh, as we said last week, and we were intro- when we were previewing this movie, I should say, um, it's not one I'm particularly a fan of, um, but it is a, it's a movie very much intentionally unpleasant. It's a movie yep. that is trying to gouge you in the eye and go, how do you feel about that? Do you feel guilty for me gouging you in the eye? Uh, and we'll walk through what that sensation yeah. exactly is a little bit later. Um, but before we dive into what is indeed a series of funny games, we got to. We just got it. By the way, I got to say, first of yeah. all, the games aren't that funny. They're not really. Yeah, but anyway, we'll yeah. get to that. The Blue Plate Special. Hi, Audrey. Norma. Have a cup of coffee, please? Sure. I'll have what she's had. Order up. I had to say you it know, in my Seinfeld Just uh, recently, Seinfeld all dropped on the Netflix, it should be said. Yeah. Uh, we got, you know, we playing the Seinfeld theme in that. And I heard a day in that <laughs> I haven't seen it, obviously, but that apparently that it's all formatted at 16 by 9 format, which is widescreen format. Yeah. And it was shot in 133.1 yeah. and would have been projected mm-hmm. on TV. So people were already. It's like. Complaining about that. Stretched out too Yeah, much. and people complained about that with. Early seasons of or The Simpsons when they dropped on Disney Plus, that's since been fixed. Uh, so they'll being, probably go fix it, I'm guessing. Probably, but I mean, people were posting yeah. steals of like the ways in which it literally changes what's in the frame. I remember, uh, like the one about the pothole that George was like pointing on the on the street about, yeah. like that. Literally, when you format it that way, it removes that from the frame, and so he's just pointing down, and you don't oh. see what it. You know what I mean? So yeah. that stuff it actually does directly change. It's almost like when you full screen something. Yeah. Uh, it's yeah. Anyways, uh, I didn't know that. So. Go watch Seinfeld somewhere if you haven't already. We're big fans. Just this month, this past Monday, 
a very long anticipated event for me anyways Levi he's a little and I, I get this myself lukewarm on the whole idea of trailers being an event uh, or yeah. trailers being something unless that it's a Paul Thomas about. Anderson movie but you know. whoa well lucky for you yeah happened to be a Paul Thomas yep. Anderson movie with licorice pizza which we've actually I think mentioned on this podcast already that, that trailer was out there uh, in certain art house and repertory theaters. What's known as Soggy Bottom. Soggy Bottom was what it was known as is a long time. <laughs> Soggy Bottom. Yeah, uh, I, yeah. I, I was wondering if that was really going to be what it stuck with. Yeah, or yeah. And there's a real chance I think that could have happened. It's like originally the beach bum was called Moondog and it should have been that. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. you know, whatever. They do that crap all the time. Which this was just like, you know, that actually was the name of the movie with Moondog. Yeah. It changes the beach bum. Uh, but that in this case that was just its running title or what uh, working title I yeah. say rather. But Licorice Pizza, um, and I didn't really know this, but uh, recent articles and stuff talking about this movie had pointed out was the name of a series of record stores in the L.A. area, I think the San Bernardino Valley area that uh, existed in the late '60s, early '70s. So that's what that's connected. Which to. is interesting because in itself that's sort of a pseudo callback to Boogie Nights in the sense that. Don Cheadle's character owns those stereo yeah. like equipment stores or whatever. And in a lot of ways, this feels like Paul Thomas Anderson throwing back to older other films he's done. Whether it be, I think most immediately, a lot of people compare us to Boogie Nights, but also, I mean, in the wake of not that long ago making Inherent Vice, which of course we did a whole podcast on. Go listen yeah. to that. It and, feels like it's trafficking and punch in that. Love as yeah. well, but I'll talk about that in a minute. Why? Uh, so very interestingly, kind of the two leads of this movie are. Uh, Elena Haim, I believe is how you say her name, of the Haim Band, which he's directed music videos for. And uh, I'm not really... By the way, let let me say real quick, I can't remember if it is Haim or another way to say it, so sorry, we can't get all our names right today, but anyway, we're going to say Haim for now. Anyways. And uh, Cooper Hoffman, I believe is his name, who's uh, the son of Philip Seymour, um, are the leads of this. Yeah. Uh, Neither one of them have really been big leads in a movie before, so that in and of itself is interesting to just see these new faces now kind of be in front of this Paul Thomas Anderson movie. We've made no secrets about in this podcast that we're huge Paul Thomas Anderson fans. Uh, again, our inherent biceps, we talked at length about him, but that will not be, of course, the last time we'll talk about no. him. What were your big takeaways from seeing this trailer? Well, first of all, I want to jump back real quickly to the fact that Elena Haim is in this movie. Yeah. Uh, of course, he, uh, as in PTA, directed a lot of uh, Haynes' music videos. Famously, Valentine, which is kind of a 14-minute uh, collection of three songs. Um, it was totally amazing when it came out. I still think about it. It was a big deal, uh, kind of, in a way, when it came out. It was on YouTube. It, it had played, like, uh, I think in some IMAX screenings before movie. I don't even remember what movies it was for. Uh, that Probably was like, specialty stuff for the arc light theaters. That was in like LA 20, or, yeah. early 2018 or late 2017. I can't remember what it was exactly. But anyway, uh, so he's kind of a friend of the family. So yeah. it kind of makes sense that she would be in a movie now, but it's interesting. Um, but yeah, I, and I like him, what I've heard. I like. I, you know, nothing against their music, but I like them most, I guess, because of their connection to PTA. Well, that's, that's how I guess right. you were introduced uh, to them, yeah. But. Yeah, I think they're good, you know. They're especially good for a pop rock thing that most people like. Uh, yeah. Because, you know... Well, we they got, what, like two albums out now, or is there a third? I think there's two or three. Yeah. Uh, I can't remember. I'll look that up right but now. But anyway, uh, I think there's three. Okay. 
I don't know about EPs, or if one of them was an EP and the other ones were, I don't know. But anyway, uh, you know, because you can't trust... Three yeah, studio albums. You can't trust America's taste these days, no. so therefore I think that... Three uh, albums are called Days Are Gone, Something to Tell You, and Women in Music Part yes. 3. Uh, so in the sense that people really like it and it's actually good is kind of a surprise. But anyway, um, so there's the first thing. Yeah. Um, I'm actually surprised because we've had private conversations. Uh, they were probably bugged like the like the Oval Office or yeah. something. But private conversations over the past probably year and a half, two years since we've known this movie was going to be made, uh, that uh, we were kind of wary of this movie. Um, and the main reason was because he was kind of returned to the well of let's do another Southern California '70s movie, which he's done twice before. Yeah. Both of those movies uh, are not our favorites from him, um, so that's something to note. Uh, I was kind of low-key blown away by this trailer for multiple reasons. The first one being, and we'll see how it goes. You know, maybe it'll be kind of like Inherent Vice, and it won't work out, you know, or something. But it seems like, oh, an actual like romantic movie from him. Uh, kind of like I said, reminded me of Punch Drunk Love, which I think is his far, by far his most optimistic film. Mm-hmm. Um, other than maybe Boogie Nights, but I don't uh, buy or and or agree with many of uh, the kind of moral, I guess, statements that are made in that movie, yeah. but whatever. Um, but that in this, it seems like it is just kind of a hangout movie, but it seems like there's something a little more to that that is a little more, it's a strange way to say this, but a little more conventional uh, mm-hmm. in a way that I would like. Yeah. Uh, also, it's got David Bowie in it. It's got Tom Waits in it. It's got some guy that looks like Otto Preminger saying, Listen, young lady. Listen, young lady. Not sure how great my impression was with my... my it's got Sean Penn. Oh, I love that yes. Sean Penn's like an afterthought in the trailer, too. And right? he's, he's just... like right on a motorcycle screaming... I'm like, a Nazi, basically, yeah. is what he says. Yeah. And so it's like, what is it? And I remember at the time the movie was shooting, that definitely I was, everybody knew that Bradley Cooper had a role in it, and that he's pl- quite literally playing John Peters yeah. because of his reference to being, you know, uh, in a relationship with Streisand. Um, but that it was, I think, said or reported at the time that Sean Penn was seen on the set. And I know that him and Bradley Cooper are close, close personal friends, and so okay. I kind of imagine, oh, he's just visiting him on the set of this movie. But he is indeed actually going to yeah. be in the movie. Um, and Which is interesting in itself yeah. because, real quickly, mm-hmm. that's in itself almost a return to a movie that Spicoli could be in. Strangely. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but now he's the old guy. Yeah. So it's right. kind of interesting. But anyway. Uh, and one and thing, that, 80s, one thing that immediately separates this from Inherent Vice is the sense of the, other than it being a Paul Thomas Anderson movie, that there are no like big expectations of what this has to be. It yes. doesn't have to measure up to like the right. prose of Thomas Pinchon. You know what I mean? It doesn't have to match what his vision of that is. It gets to be kind of PTA's vision of this. Right. Um, and as tiresome as, and uh, again, we he's one of our very favorite directors, your favorite, probably my like third, that like, you know, when this was announced, we were, as you said, privately kind of like, well, I kind of wish he would do something different or whatever. Um, but I, again, coming off, Something like Phantom Thread, which was his most recent film by this point. Um, and I remember hearing that announcement, like, what? What is that? And and that being as great as it was, that doing something that's a little more, quote, return to form for him, it certainly seems like he's... I think one of the reasons he maybe wants to do a movie like this is to 
play and have fun with these new actors or these yeah, younger actors right. and to like probably like help mentor them and work with them and get a spark from them to tell a story or a world that we've seen from him before. But it looks like it's going to have some strange particulars to it as well. I mean, Benny Safdie is going to be in it. As like running for district attorney or something, because if you remember, some of the on-set photos yeah. were of uh, posters, like, posters of, yeah. of him, and, I, and it said something like, District attorney or mayor, or and I was just, and it was like his face, yeah. and it was with like his hair, and it's weird. I wonder if they're gonna try to go for some sort of like Harvey Milk esque thing because he kind of reminds me of Harvey Milk the way he looks. Maybe I'll be interested to see what that is in general. Um, but yeah, so yeah, I agree. I think it's interesting, yeah, for him to go back and do that, and and as far as it goes with like you said about expectations. Some people will be looking at this in the sense of him, PTA himself, yeah. as an expectation yeah. at with Boogie Nights and Inherent Vice because people are such big fans of those. Um, but the good news is for us, you know, particularly, those were a little bit of more of disappointments. So, therefore, we're not going into this in that way. Where I, I At least for me, yeah. I don't want to speak for you, but at least for me, I'm going into it expecting it to be better than those things already. Yeah. But I'm not, and I'm not saying that it definitely will be. Yeah. Um, but I think that there's a lot more of interest here, um, particularly with, because in certain ways, you know, Boogie Nights was about his, uh, you know, uh, knowledge and goings on in Hollywood and show business of his father being part of uh, show business. Um, and uh, I feel like this will be in a lot of ways, uh, even more like that than Boogie Nights was for his own autobiographical sense. It is interesting uh, to think about these three movies together, speculatively about this, but in the sense of how, obviously, Inherent Vice is set in L.A., but it's not like a really, for the most part, a Hollywood story. It's kind of about things. And the showbiz filters in and out of the story, but it is not largely about showbiz in some way. Um, And this seems like it is. I mean, Cooper Hoffman, of course... Um, and it's about definitive show business, not right. like pornography, right. which is its own subgenre well, that's of I'm, show You know, this like, seems like it's you know. threading the needle between, you know, Boogie Nights was clearly about like a very reputable, disreputable yet still existent form of show business. So it's like about the grim and grinding, grimy and trying to elevate it. Yeah. Meanwhile, Inherent Vice, while not about show business, is about adapting the work of Thomas Pinchon, which is this huge tall order. And then this gets to just kind of be its own thing. You know what I mean? It's not burdened by either uplifting something or matching something else. But it's like it just can be its own little thing, you know. Uh, I remember seeing a tweet from somebody, I can't remember this week, in reaction to the trailer, someone who was quite taken with it, but she had said something along the lines of like, you know, as great as this looks, why is it we expect Paul Thomas Anderson to come in and save us with a coming of age movie when these type of movies got used to get made all the time at a decently sized budget, get a theatrical release that just, you know, there's a certain sadness to the reality that he's one of the few directors that can even do something that seems this fairly conventional and fairly straightforward and it be, oh, a big event movie other than it being purely him. Again, they're saying, oh, I want to see it, but like, why are we relying on him, one person, really, yeah. to like we've seen, pull along yeah. this whole type we've of movie? We've seen a massive reduction in movies like that over the years. Like the fact that a movie, and I didn't see it, you actually saw it, a movie like The Edge of Seventeen, which looked like just a movie. 
you know. Yeah. Like, I mean, uh, they made dozens of and back then, in the 80s But and I know 90s. it was kind of a big deal. Right. Uh, oh, look at this. It, right, yeah. or something like The Spectacular Now. Yeah. I actually have seen that. Or even Book Smart or Eighth Grade. Stuff like yeah. that, where it's these. and But Coming these feel, like I said, yeah. like events now. Which is so strange because I feel like those, more than any other genre of movie, actually really connect with young people. Yeah. Uh, but that Hollywood now, and I'm not going to, you know, Marvel, we all know. Yeah, Who yeah. cares? But that, that's all that get you know, those types of movies are all that get made. The only safe bets. When so, movies like that used to be a safe bet because everybody would go and see them and they yeah. were popular. And, and even know, a movie like American Graffiti, which... Uh, I find to still be popular among younger people who aren't as into movies right. uh, that they still like something like that or Days and Confused or whatever. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I think you're right in that and it's interesting. I'm glad somebody brought that up because uh, yeah, it is strange that that has become an event and an outlier. Yeah. Uh, it should be that, said too. And that LeBron James had to fund LeBron, it. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Uh, also, this fits into another conversations we've had before about how uh, the last current, in quotes, film PTA has made now was 20 years ago with Punch Drunk yeah. Love. And this is yet another period piece. And as yeah. much as we'd love to see those, yeah. we've also had a lot of conversations about when are you going to make a movie about the modern world, yeah, so and to that, speak. That, that's something I did want to bring up is that I'm still kind of chafing at that. I mean, the last... Yeah, I mean, it's the same thing with him. Uh, Coens. The Coens and even Tarantino. Tarantino hasn't made a... I guess since Death Proof. Uh, I was going to say Kill that, Bill, but yeah, Death yeah, Proof. Yeah, that he's made yeah. a movie that is set in the modern day. Same and Death Proof with, almost, yeah. by virtue of its format, almost makes you, if you squint or don't really think about it, it could easily take place in the 70s. Yeah, you know? and isn't it this, the same, I guess with Burn After Reading with the Coens, and even Intolerable Cruelty before that. Yeah. Uh, but mm-hmm. that, but... You know, Burn After Reading was definitely in the market. And again, I, we love history. We yeah. love period pieces. Yeah. But there is a certain frustration we've also talked about that of certain contemporary filmmakers getting caught up in the period piece game and not making movies, quote, about the modern day. Now, that's not to say that they can't still resonate yeah. and be about people now. Uh, but, you know, but there is a certain remove from yeah. the modern day. that, And some of them, I mean... Most modern day stuff he's done are either these Hame videos or the Radiohead videos. Right, and you see those, and you're like, yeah, because he made uh, Anima, you know, recently, right. that and that was out, like guess, sort yeah. of a like basically a science fiction movie. Yeah, and it's like, yeah, why can't like, you? do that was something so like exciting. That? And yeah. It's like, oh, why don't we do a movie yeah. like that in that direction? Yeah, yeah. And Tom York to, stars in. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, mean, I love to see Tom York star in anything, but let's see him uh, stare and look at the. the He's kind of yeah, crazy to eyes. Do that, so he's a brilliant artist. Yeah, oh, taking yeah. away from that. But um, is Johnny Greenwood doing the score for this? I would imagine. I, I mean, he's guess, been doing all of I don't them, know. so I, I don't. Uh, I don't know if that's official. John Bryan kicked to the curb, you know. Sadly, um, well, I mean, both are great. So in their own ways, John Bryan still works consistently too. Should be said. I know he's. Yeah, he works a, a lot with uh, uh, Charlie Kaufman. He does a lot of oh, his right, movies. Oh yeah. right, so yeah. Uh, but yeah, that's what I was going to say. Is that like you know. Uh, a lot of people call these, you know, the new Hollywood directors of their generation, right? You know, mm-hmm. Tarantino and, and PTA and the Coens and whoever, you know. But what the what is kind of a shame is that, you know, those the a lot of the biggest uh, new Hollywood films like Easy Rider or Five Easy Pieces or uh, Harold Maud or... Reflected the... Whatever, reflected world, yeah. the, the era in which it was. 
And of course, you have stuff like The Godfather or, uh, you know, McCabe, Mrs. Miller or Daisy Miller or MASH or whatever. Not that Barney were, Miller, though. Period, no. <laughs> that were period pieces. <laughs> yeah. But a, that's what, I guess that points to something is that a lot of these directors, as great as they are, doing their own cosplays and versions of, especially Tarantino, yeah. of older things. Because even his contemporary movies are just, yeah. you know like Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, Jackie Brown, and the Kill, well, Kill Bill movies aren't even throwbacks, any reality, yeah. really, uh, are all 70s movies, yeah. essentially, But yeah. other than the fact that they're uh, made in the 90s. Made yeah. the 90s. Yeah. But so that's something we've yeah, talked about and noticed is that... Uh, and then somebody like Soderbergh, who just isn't making good movies, period, these days, mm-hmm. or, or at least interesting movies, uh, is making movies for the most part in the modern day. It's just that we don't care about them. It, you so, know, we've yeah. uh, and we've talked about how the quote new generation, which consists kind of of uh, Damien Chazelle, uh, Barry Jenkins, both of them, you know, made hot contemporary successes back in 2015 with Moonlight and uh, La La Land. And, and yeah, then, even Moonlight is sort of a period piece, but it is in the more in the sure, modern. Sure, yeah. But then, you know, Chazelle's next movie is First Man. His next movie after that, Babylon, going to be set in the late 20s, early 30s. Um, Jenkins just came off doing both uh, Bill Street Could Talk and Underground Railroad, which are both, you know, one set in a period yeah. a long time ago, comparatively, kind of Antebellum South. But then even that, you know, late 60s, 70s, whenever that was. So... Again, I, get, I, say, I feel like I'm weird complaining about this because I love period pieces yeah. and I love that. But there is a weird urgency of why aren't some of our favorite filmmakers making yeah. movies and about the modern see, day. I feel like one of the last truly modern things to be made and uh, released was uh, uh, We Are Who We Are, mm-hmm. the TV show, the miniseries by Luca Guadagnino. That felt incredibly urgently. And even that is a period piece of around the 2016 election. Uh, but even still, it's so much of you know about even past that, yeah. Uh, and that that is the last truly modern thing that I've seen, uh, along with which I haven't seen, but something like Euphoria. Um, and that doesn't mean you know, and I'm not saying we have to reflect youth as the only thing that is going on right, right. now. Well, that's but, usually the only contemporary yeah. things that get made are right. the youth, uh, as opposed to. Well, what about people in their 40s right now or people in their uh, 70s right now? I mean, like, you know, there are various ways you can adapt this, these kind of things. But uh, Because that's what's frustrating. I've had personal friends say this, and if you're hearing this, you know, no, no offense to you, love you, babes, but uh, that I have I've known people recently, and I kind of felt this way too in the immediate, but this was back in, like, May of last year when this was being said, or even April, whenever. They were like, oh, I, you know, I don't want to see any movies or anything made about COVID. I'm done with it already, blah, 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 you know. Yeah. And at the first moment they said that, I kind of agreed because I was like, okay, you're going to get these movies like, uh, what was it called, that uh, host or, no, what that movie, it was like it was all filmed in, during the pandemic of it's like those like uh, unfriended movies, whatever. I think it was called oh, Host, I yeah. think. Uh, and stuff like that that was made in that moment or these other movies like, uh, I think they're, and it probably was being made before then, but there was that, uh, I can't remember the name of it, that South Korean uh, movie that was a, a zombie movie that was yeah. came out kind of around. So like, you know, and I get that, you know, we're already tired of it, but it's like, but that, 
we need that reflection of reality now well, it's, more than well, ever. Also, because, not only do we need you know, it, it will happen. Right. So, it's, it's, so right. Don't, don't deny it. Yeah. I mean, and, no, and, don't mean you want to yeah. see them. Yeah. But there will undoubtedly there will be there will be a lot of bad ones. But guess what? There will be some good ones in the mix yeah. too that get made. About and it. I mean, uh, you, you know, don't go through something yeah. this societally transformative and not expect that it's going to get depicted yeah. in art. I and mean, especially in television. Uh, yeah, television that, I think has a more immediate because lifeline to, that, to do that. Uh, gets made and put out a lot quicker and uh that we've seen that i mean we were seeing stuff for that show all rise or whatever on cbs and it was like people wearing those like face shields and they're like wearing their like uh judge robes and it just looks laughable but it's like well that's That's what what reality you know so i appreciated that about a lot of television uh that was garbage anyway but you know uh yeah that so therefore that's a long way of saying I would have liked t- PTA to have made a more modern day movie. And but, who knows? Yeah. Maybe the next one will be. We don't know. But it seems as though, as after twenty plus years almost of not doing that, then it's hard to yeah. get too excited at the prospect of his next movie will be something a little different. Uh, but again, also, I mean, it goes without saying, Cooper Hoffman is Philip Seymour Hoffman's son, yeah. uh, and there were some memes and some, not even memes, but just pictures going around of him talking on the phone in this juxtaposed with yeah. Hoffman in uh, Magnolia and uh, it's very sweet just to think about the PTA's working with the son of one of his greatest collaborators in Phil yeah. Hoffman um, so obviously for any little minor criticisms we say about this we're going to be there day got one Tom Waits throwing alcohol through the air oh yeah and we were talking about this that this yeah. is the first time Tom Waits has worked with PTA yeah. we love Tom Waits as well um, there better be a forty-five minute reel on the Blu-ray that's just excised weight stuff, like the weights, yeah, you know, the weights cut or whatever. You know, you know what I mean? So, and I don't know how true this is. Uh, by the way, Johnny Greenwood is scoring it according okay. to Wikipedia. Um, and I I looked at IMDb. This is not being confirmed, but according to Wikipedia, the runtime for this is a hundred minutes. I do not know oh, if that God. actually is what the movie's going to be. Oh, yes, uh, but. Okay. So that's gotta say. By the way, I make my predictions. Okay. You know. Yep. Let's hear. Uh, oh, you. Yeah. Now it's probably not gonna happen. Yeah. So know that. I know. I, I keep doubling down. It keeps not happening. Yeah. I don't know when Otto Preminger actually passed away. Uh, Let me look that up. Right now. So maybe we should do that before I even. Well, I, I think he would have left. I think he would have lived through. Yeah, but that, I think that that guy in the trailer that says, "Listen, young lady," is Otto Preminger. So that's it looks my, a lot like him from that yeah. angle. He died in 1986, so... Okay, we're safe in the realm of... Uh, I don't know if he was making movies past then. Of course it's not going to be him. But, Levi Huffman knows that. But you but gotta, you gotta still, double yeah, down. He you doubles know? down. Yeah. Uh, you know, I was right, though, about my last prediction about Candyman, which I did not see. But yeah. that... Uh, so, spoiler on that, uh, now, I'll go ahead and say, uh, that... Uh, Coleman Domingo. Coleman Domingo was sort of a villain in the movie. Yes. I, I was right on that. That yeah. wasn't hard to tell, but no. I was right. So right. Anyway. That's quite good, actually, by the way. I yeah. think I've said that. I one. didn't see it. Uh, so, Anyways. we're going to definitely be seeing Licorice oh, yeah. Pizza. We'll definitely be talking about it right after it comes out. So, expect to hear more on that. We love PTA, so we'll be there. So, listen, young lady. It's interesting that we're talking about kind of period pieces slash the sons of actors taking yeah. on roles similar to their fathers or whatnot, because that's very much at play with the latest film uh, in the Sopranos-verse, which is hard, it's a weird thing yeah. to swallow and say. Uh, the Many Saints of Newark, 
recently just dropped on HBO Max as well as in theaters. We planned to try to see it in theaters, but the timing didn't quite work out for our schedule, so we decided we'll watch it on the good old old HBO Max. Which know? actually worked. Which is, and looked good. Yeah. Which, which is rare. Both for of those them. things to be checked. Yeah. So I think we previewed talking about this trailer a few episodes ago by this point. Yeah. Um, so again, this is a prequel film set in the Newark DeMeo crime family, which is, of course, was very much at play in the uh, Sopranos TV show. I'll say one thing about this movie, among many things, is that I didn't go into it expecting it to, quote, be on par with the Sopranos. Yeah. If not the one of the greatest television shows strange, in the history of the media. We were talking about this in the car earlier. That I don't know why people would assume that people think that or ever would think that, and it doesn't. But yes, so that's strange that people would even assume. And it comes that, at a know. time that there was a really great little um, New York Times article that was recently just written. Uh, let's see if I can find it here. Uh, that was basically about. Um, the younger fandom that has accumulated around the show um, called Why Is Every Young Person in America Watching The Sopranos? Um, which actually is talking about and kind of tracing a phenomenon that has specifically been noticed around the beginning of COVID that has happened over the last year and a half of younger people getting into Sopranos for the first time and kind of wondering how or why has that happened. A lot of it, I think, has to do with the availability of HBO Max, it seems as though, because, you know, um, we're not exactly binge watchers, obviously, but we're no strangers to being younger people watching shows that are several decades old by this yeah. point via streaming. You've recently been watching some of Newhart, I know. Uh, yeah, Bob Newhart. Bob the Bob Newhart show, not Newhart. Okay, right. Okay. Yes, but yes. Excuse me. Yeah. Uh, and not Bob, one of his other shows after Newhart. And um, and it's kind of talking about why this is, and there's all these like younger fan podcasts now, and Michael Imperioli even has his own podcast, and he even narrates this movie, which we'll talk yeah. about in a little bit. We're going to talk about spoilers about the movie, by the way, so if you don't want to hear any of that, just go ahead and skip ahead. ahead. Somewhere. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so I just think it is fascinating that this show has a staying power. Now, it's also naturally, well, the show's just a brilliant work of genius. Of course it's going to stick around. Um but there is something in particular, I think, about younger people that are gravitating towards the show. I think part of it has to do with a lot of the peop a lot of younger people. It's a window into the world they were born into in terms of the way the world looked, in terms of yeah. the way the kitchen looks or the way that, you know, the logos of very oh, look at that. That was when the Coke logo looked like that on the yeah. soda two liters. You know what I mean? Just like and this well, you're talking about people our age, I guess? Yeah, I think that's, because well, of, yeah. both, I okay. think, is just, and for those who are younger than us even, it's a way to say, oh, this is the world my parents kind of existed in, or yeah. like my older brothers or sisters or whoever. You know what I mean? It's like a window into the recent past. Um, but it also talked a lot about the themes of the show and how that might relate to people frustrated with, quote, late capitalism and all this stuff. I recommend you read it. It's pretty good. Um but mental health as well, I'm sure. That too, that, yeah, yeah, mental health, yeah. Uh, and then it, it kind of, the whole article ends with, if you remember towards the end of the show, AJ's just a complete screw-up the whole yeah. time. And he says, oh, I want to become a helicopter pilot. If I get good enough, maybe Donald Trump will hire me. He, yeah. he says, and that forever's yeah. connected now to the show, right. obviously, and what that legacy means. Yeah. Um, and so this arrives in the wake of kind of this renewed, and I should say, it's weird to say renewed appreciation because from the jump, the show was... Critically acclaimed, beloved, 
won tons of Emmys, yeah. rating smash. But it does say that even 20 years after it's started and 10-plus years, nearly 15 years after it's been over, that it is still a show that people love, yeah. watch, appreciate, admire, pick apart. So this movie is an attempt to do a prequel of sorts. Now, there had been a prequel movie that's been teased even, I think, since the very beginning of when the show was on that Chase was talking about the idea of maybe going and talking about uh, Tony's dad or um, Uncle Dickie, who's a figure who's mentioned a lot over the course of the show in passing, who's Christopher's uh, dad yeah. and was a sort of a uncle father-esque-like figure in some ways more than his own dad to Tony, even more so than uh, his father was. Um it's a big question, so and this is gonna we're gonna talk a while about this. And again, spoilers for those, as Levi said earlier, for this movie. Um, we recommend you watch it before you maybe listen to us talk about it, or if you're comfortable with it, then just stick around, I guess. What does this movie do for you for the quote Sopranos lore and or how does it exist in its own terms in that? Of course it doesn't I guess nothing. I mean, you know, as far as it it didn't need to exist, as we know. Uh but I really quite liked it, which is surprising. I did too. I just because to I know a lot of people aren't liking it, and even people we're very close to don't really like yeah. it. Uh, I don't know. I just I did I did I found it not to be too trifling, not to be heavy on. Oh, look at what ha-. I felt like it was a new enough story for me that. You know, and some of the stuff with Tony was a little bit of the least, the the least interesting stuff to me. Yeah. Uh, Though Michael Gandolfini's performance oh, yeah. is spot on, oh, yeah. playing his the part his dad obviously made yeah, famous. But, yeah, but uh, you know that didn't do a whole lot for me. But uh, I think it is interesting though. The one thing about it that I really like, as far as that goes, is that it. And we knew this in the show. I think this is something people forget. It's how smart Tony actually is, yeah. and how interested in history he is, and and very and, and in a, like yeah. not necessarily an intellectualized way, but yeah, he's a guy who a scene that I always talk about and point to, and it seems like a very minor thing, is the scene. <laughs> it's towards the beginning of season two or three. I can't quite remember where he goes in. He's having a meeting with the Capos. He's with Seal, which, by the way, Seal makes an appearance in this and was hilariously played by oh, that actor. I'll look him up here in a second. I can't remember his name. Um, who's Stephen Van Zandt? Well, the guy who played him in Seal oh. in uh, this. Oh, John McGarry. Yeah, yeah, he was almost perfect as yeah. Seal impression, basically. Yeah. Um, but a scene that always sticks out to me with Tony's intelligence is when he goes to meet with the Capos and he says to them, I want to know why there's no growth in this family's receipts. And that, and I don't know what the backstory behind this is, but I always imagine Tony. He caught like a good ten, fifteen minutes of CNBC that morning, and was really listening to him the way they talked about stocks or the way they talk about business, and was genuinely interested as someone who himself sees himself as a quote entrepreneur or businessman, and is like, oh, I'm going to throw around some terms like that in this meeting. You know, I've got to go do, and they immediately do not respond. They're like, huh, what? And he, he, he immediately abandons that like yeah. sense of intelligence and just gets right down to where's the effing money? Yeah. Like, I just right. love like that moment of like him trying to again he's he didn't go to college but he is like you said a clearly yeah. intelligent guy and that just being immediately wiped away like all right I'm gonna just use the language you understand where's the effing money and then they yeah. all have these excuses for yeah. why and you know and so I think 
really the most important scene in the movie in a lot of ways is that scene uh, in the principal's office where the principal's talking to uh, uh, oh poor you Vera Farmiga oh she was uh, oh, yeah, spot good. on yeah. as uh, Olivia Spran, one of the most yeah. dreadful characters ever conceived or created <laughs> and uh, I was shaking my head as he was saying that yeah, yeah. That, uh Based on Chase's own mother, by the way. Yeah. Uh, I love the story, but yeah. you're probably going to say this, but yeah. that Stephen Van Zandt was reading the script, and he's like, there's no Italian mother I know that is like this. This is just so extreme. And then so, so Chase just kind of shrugged as well, that's my mother. Right. Yeah. And Van Zandt was like, oh, okay. and He's Italian-American, so yeah. yeah. Uh, but yeah, that so, and that there's this whole meeting between the principal and her and saying, you know, he's very intelligent. He's a leader. He's enthusiastic. Like, you know, and she's just like, Oh, like please, you know what? <laughs> like, yeah. uh, so that I think that it's interesting, of course. Therefore, that he could have, and that, and you know, uh, John Bagaro as Silvio said this to Dicky in that one scene. He's like, you know, he can do something more than even this, like above this thing of ours. He yeah. used the language, and uh, the ultimately spoiler. Dickie's death is the thing that definitively makes him say, "No, you know what? I am gonna." do this whole thing and mm-hmm. gonna be a, a, in the mafia as yeah. Donald Sutherland would say. But as he later hey, tells his daughter, there is no mafia. You yeah. know, but so I think that, you know, we didn't need to know that, but I think that's just something that we knew in the show that I think it further confirms that I find interesting. But We will you know, say, and again, this is a spoiler of sorts, especially for the end of the movie, that in the show... Uncle Dickie's death was rumored to be the murder of a cop that they weren't exactly sure who it was. But then later on, Tony traps, uh, or kind of tells, I should say, well, either one, Christopher, oh, that's the guy who killed your father, and then Christopher kills that man. Still not being 100% sure that he was the one who did it, but decides, I'm going to tell myself that that was, so that justifies that. Yeah. The revelation in this movie, which I'm not even totally sure they knew when they were writing the show, was that Junior was actually behind yeah. Dickie's death. Uh, he hired a guy to do that, kill him, because of he was insulted by him laughing at him when he yeah. and not just that there were other kind of power struggles of sorts, but that Junior himself was behind, played by Corey Stoll in the movie. Well, I think uh, it's pretty good, Junior. Yeah, and I remember seeing Chase talk about in that interview I've referenced already with Seppenwall that he thought Corey Stoll did such a great job, but in his mind, Junior was always just an old man. Yeah. And this is depicting him as well. He's not an old man yet, on the path to being one. But like that, I mean, a name like Corrado. Imagine a little kid named Corrado Soprano. You know what I mean? That's just hard to wrap your head around. But, um, and it is interesting that again, More like Corrado Soprano. That so Corrado. that was a yeah. revelation that this movie is like. Oh, so Junior was behind yeah. that the whole time, and we know what a killer instinct Junior has anyways that he can just be the most evil man in the room but just sit back and look like just some grouchy crotchety old man Yeah, because a lot of the movie he's taken all this like verbal abuse and he kind of smiles and shakes it or nods his head but he's thinking I'm going to kill you. Like, I didn't think that in the the moment but 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 I kind of like, yeah, the whole time he was thinking I'm going to have him killed at some point I will do it. Yeah, right. Uh, So, yeah, in that sense that's another revelation. Uh, the other, you know, I think the most imp- inherently interesting things about the movie, number one, is uh, Dicky Moltisanti as a character. The movie is about, he is the main character of the movie. Yeah. Uh, you know. Yeah. Uh, and the, it real and you know, he's, 
He's not the most interesting character in the world. I mean, he's like any other mobster, you know, whatever. Yeah. But uh, it didn't just try to totally make it a young Tony movie. Yeah, uh, it should be said Dickie was played by Alessandro Nivola, yeah. who's a really good actor. He he played a good little part in Most Violent Year, I remember. Mm-hmm. Leslie Odom Jr. Let me just go through the cast real and, quick yeah. just to talk about who's in this. Leslie Odom Jr. is Harold McBrayer, or Breyer, Breyer, I believe is how you say it. Uh, who's basically a guy who, well, him and Dickie were in high school together, I think it said at some point, years ago. Or they knew each other, they played football together maybe. And they were kind of friends early on, but then uh, Harold wants to go off and kind of do his own thing, and that is, it puts them into conflict, and they'll be able to numbers game. Vera Farmiga, as we said, is Livia Soprano. John Barenthal is Johnny Soprano. He's not in this a whole, whole lot, and I think that speaks to, frankly, if, if you know the show, Sopranos, of how Tony views his own father as a kind of a warped sense of he holds him as a hero, but he's also resentful that he wasn't really around as much either. Uh, as we said, Corey Stoll is junior. Ray Liotta, we should say, he plays two parts. Stay out of his life. His uh, I mean, twin yeah. brothers, Hollywood Dick Moltisanti and Salvatore Sally Moltisanti. Yeah. Um, so he plays, again, two parts. What do we want to say about Ray Liotta in this? I know it, it should be said that I think Ray Liotta was approached several times about maybe being a character on The Sopranos when it was originally on. So it is kind of cool in a meta way to see Henry Hill be interloped in The Sopranos lore. So because Lorraine Bracco already had be already had yeah. been Tony Sirico already had been mm-hmm. uh, you know different people yeah different people. That Paul Sorvino never ended up in it. No, but, which uh, is kind of surprising. Uh, but you know, I think that. Um, I think it's really interesting because his Hollywood Dick performance is really over the top and really annoying. Uh, Intentionally so, right. but yeah, but it is like, okay. Well, well, I mean, I really out of doing and, this, and, and I'll get to the evil of Dicky Moltisanti in a yeah. few minutes. But that when when he kills him because he kills his own father, yeah, which is just like wow, beats his head in and on a, and later steering wheel uh, drowns his uh, mistress who was his father's wife. Yeah. So figure all that out. Yeah. Uh, but that when he goes to do it and he gets in the car, he's like, "Where are you going?" And and Leota said, "Hollywood Dick says, uh, my doctor changed my blood thinners." <laughs> and, and yeah, he might not should have been on a blood thinner after what happened yeah. to him immediately after. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I think that's a really annoying performance. But I really was interested in the twin performance because it was totally different. That character, character. was. We were talking about this earlier after the fact that he had been put in jail uh, because he had killed a made man at, like, age 25. Uh, so if you do the math, we've been in, like, the late 20s or yeah, early right. 30s. So he's been in jail forever, you know. Yeah. And that he just has this whole, you know, it's kind of seems obvious, like this whole way of looking at things that is so foreign to everybody else in the movie. Yeah. Uh, which, naturally, if you spend that many time behind bars, Which is very clairvoyant. Be. In yeah. a lot of ways, you know, it, and people think, oh, he's just whatever, but it's like, oh, he actually is pretty, you know, right on about a lot of these yeah. things. Even other than, because he, he's, he, he, you can tell he sees through Dickie. Oh, and yeah. he knows that he's, oh, all these people dying around you, huh? Like, oh, yeah. what's up with that? Yeah, because like, there's the whole thing. He's like, you know, my brother never, never got his hands dirty. He's like, don't you think it's strange he would have yeah. went there and did that? And he's like, well, I don't know, whatever. Yeah. And he's like, okay. Yeah. Basically, he's like, <laughs> That's what's funny is he never challenges him on it. He's just like, oh, you killed my brother, and 
and your and also directly but, tells him you need to leave your uh, nephew alone. Stay out of his life. Yeah, I mean, just, yeah. Like, you but know. anyway, so I really love that character, and I think that it's uh, very interesting in the sense of being a uh, a late performance Leota. Yeah, you know, it's kind of like his swan song in a lot of ways, even though he's still going to be acting for some yeah. years, I would assume. But that uh, it's kind of a you know, so like I said, sort of a swan song in a lot of ways. I don't, I don't want to, you know, like oh, I know what you mean, yeah. put him in the ground already or anything. But you know, because he's still you know, he ain't that old. But the, it's an interesting performance from him in a in an era of a lot of. Uh, well, as as funny uh, as the Hollywood you know, Dick performance was, like it was getting a little tiresome. You know, like, oh, I'm glad that guy's dead. But then you're also like, oh, I kind of wish to see Leota more in it. And then he comes in right. as this twin, and he a totally different performance. Yeah. And sometimes it's bad to say, but sometimes I need reminding that Leota is actually a pretty good actor. Yeah. And, because, and so that definitely did that. I, I mean, like, oh, you wow. see stuff like which we love it, but him in uh, Kill Them Softly, like I did it. Uh, yeah. Like, you know, his whole yeah. just like yeah. You know, uh, Mark Trap, Marky yeah. Trapman. <laughs> you know, in that movie. Yeah. Later someday we'll go all we'll the way down that. Yeah. and really but, figure out, uh, you know, what happened to Dylan. You know, we want to explore yeah, I mean, that. Dylan's dead. Yeah. I mean, yeah, he died this morning. You know I mean, <laughs> but anyway, uh, so yeah, uh, I really liked him in the movie, which is yeah, strange. it was a very welcome I, surprise. Yeah, I think. and uh, I knew he was going to be in the movie, but I thought it was going to stop with uh, the Hollywood well, just to show you sometimes how trailers can just ruin things. He very clearly kills. The first with Leota. Yeah. That shows you can't kill Leota. There's always another one waiting in the wings. Uh, and lights him on fire, and it's like, definitive. This guy's yeah. Oh, dead. Yeah, right. yeah. And I was like, but I was thinking about the trailer. It's like, what about the stay out of his life scene? Yeah. And I was like, well, how could that happen? And then, and it kind of inherently told me, well, there's going to be another Leota. And then, what is it? And then he comes in. And so. Well, that's like, our thing. Well, we had said it while we were watching it. Uh, you know, we were like, Oh, he just must not be. They must have just filmed that for the trailer. We we're right. like, okay, and then we were like, <laughs> and I was like, oh, that's his twin brother. Because I was like, what is this a dream? Right. Like, what is going on? Yeah. Well, then there was that weird dream sequence or like fantasy sequence of him being a baseball coach. What was that, by the for way? For like blind kids. Yeah. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. 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 I didn't know what that was. I was like, yeah. what? Yeah. But which was interesting. But um. And you yeah, know so, those moments in the very end of the movie too, are the most the movie tinkered with the surrealism yeah, that was right. inherent to the show. Like and, we didn't see Mother Mary again. Yeah, you know, and that's but, one thing I wanted to say too. And I don't think this is really a problem with the movie. This is just inherently what happens when you take something as expansive as that TV show and adapt it to a movie. Is you know that movie gets the slight or the stereotype, even the people who love it. Oh, it's a mob show. It's about the mafia. It's about gangsters. The movie's about that, but it's also about marriage. It's about parenthood. It's about growing up in the late 90s, early 2000s. It's about psychoanalysis. It's about uh, drug abuse, prescription drug abuse. It's about class. It's about politics. I mean, it's about America, and not in a corny, cheesy way. It's like about all these moving parts about America, and it feels so big. And naturally, as the show goes on, and any show that's in its last season starts to cut off some of the fat and it's like, all right, now it's going to be about this very tightly idea about what it is. And, you know, it's very famous part of the origin story of The Sopranos is that for Chase, 
he was attempting to make a a script, a movie version yeah. of basically the Tony Melfi relationship. That that would have been what the movie would have been about. Um, and he couldn't get it made, and he hates TV. And he's like, well, better as a movie, but then I had to make it as a TV show. In a weird way, he got what he wanted with this yeah. as the writer, and he was supposed to direct this. I'd heard that his family had some medical emergencies that he wasn't allowed to do it. Uh, and Alan Taylor, who directed a lot of the episodes of Sopranos, stepped in to do it. Um, but in a weird way, you he has to know what a brilliant work The Sopranos was, at least to an extent, in the sense that it could be about all those things. Yeah. And the move, this movie, by contrast, while really good, can only be about maybe a handful of those things because yeah. it has to be a movie that's two hours long right. and it just cannot be about it's everything. It's two hours, it's 120 minutes. Uh, and I know he's complained often about movies being too long, and so I know that he was probably intentionally like, it's movie, gonna be this. Yeah, and I say this in a good way. It feels pretty long. It fits a lot yeah. in there, even for it being about mm-hmm. so few things. I think. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, yeah, and I mean it's trying to it's obviously trying to thread the needle between Dicky Moltisanti while being talked about being a quote new character that we're gonna meet him and all versus all there's Tony, there's you know Seal, there's Polly. I was kind of uh, underwhelmed you know, by the Polly performance, by the way. Which let me say that's nothing against the guy who played him because you cannot play Polly. You no. cannot be Tony Sirico. Yeah, you know, and I know like, that um, I know Chase had also said like some of the like for Gandolfini, Michael Gandolfini playing his father, that was a fairly straightforward yeah. path and understanding of him to do that. Um, some of the performances though were so specific and so you know just what it is uh, that actor. Bill Magnuson, I think that's how you say it. Oh, yeah, that, that guy. He's been yeah. on Boardwalk Empire. I didn't even, it's he's weird because in, I didn't recognize him, but that is definitely him. Yeah. yeah. That, uh, that like, getting a lot of just the hand gestures and, like, the... I mean, so much of that stuff is really just so idiosyncratic and weird that it's hard to replicate that, so yeah. to speak. Like, uh, we're going to have a problem with that. Yeah. But, you know, I did it, <laughs> but you couldn't see it. But, yeah. And so... Some of that was easy for some actors. It was easier than others because. Uh, well, yeah, because that's know. what's weird is that Silvio, you can tell, is a little bit of a put on. Yeah, it seems like a performance mm-hmm. in itself in the show. Right, it seems right, like he's right. performing. Yeah, all the right, time. right. So that uh, it's easier, I think, to do something like that. And Even that, though that, well, it, that is, there's a there's yeah. a lot of humor with his hair in this. Yeah, some moments. And, that, and that's quite a feat. Let me yeah. say, you know, I'm not saying that's an easy perform, but that just seems like that would have been easier than Polly. Uh, another thing, the movie randomly made me remember sometimes that I forgot about the show is the age difference between Seal and yeah. Tony. Yeah, because uh, you, I forget that sometimes. It's at least a good five, six years or more, yeah. I think. And the show, it almost acts like they kind of, <coughs> quote, quote grew up together and loosely they would have. Yeah. But, it, you know, that was an adjustment mentally. I had to oh, remember. I was like, oh yeah, yeah. Paul and or Silvio and Tony were a little... Uh, Still was a little older, you know. Yeah. Uh, and also, Carmela makes a brief one scene appearance with the West Caldwell. Yeah. West Caldwell. <laughs> it looks uh, like uh, Letterman, Letterman jacket. jacket. Yeah. Uh, also, um, we didn't get any Tony B in this, which we were no. wondering if we would. Yeah. You know. Um, we didn't get any beef and sausage by the blade. We did get Carlo. some Artie. Yeah. Luco, though, yeah. You know, which was smoking random. A, him and Tony sharing a cigarette. Yeah. Uh, 
So I think we would agree. You know. And then that was him that he beat up when he said, what did you say or whatever? Wasn't that him? No, I think it was somebody that else. Was somebody else? Yeah. Okay. Uh, but, you know, Artie would have came back with a rifle pointed at him. Remember that whole thing? Uh, but, um, yeah, I mean, again, I think our – I mean, it's mine, mine anyways. Expectations were slightly lower because the buzz around it was a little bit on the lower yeah. side. Um but I still thought it was a good, pretty good little yeah. movie. And again, as you said earlier, it being two hours, it has a David Chase sensibility to yeah. it in terms of the way it paces itself. Um, it sometimes almost, and I kind of admire this, feels plotless. It's almost like, yeah, oh, they're going to come to blows at some point, them being Dickie and um, Harold. Uh, but... We're not gonna be. We're not gonna rush it. We're gonna, you know, let's just gonna do this here yeah. a little bit of that. Well, like, and, I, and I was gonna say, I think the other best thing about the movie is the Harold uh, stuff because that's a good portion of the movie. And inherently, I think is if you would have trimmed down just a little bit more of of the kind of legacy, lega prequel, right? I guess lega sequel prequel thing about yeah. it. That I think that's ultimately what the movie really would have been more about. Yeah, uh, but I think that's the most interesting of it. it. Covers the race riots of Newark and sets up uh, the dynamic between Harold and Dickie. And even early on, like remember that scene? There's these scenes where Harold stops by, yeah. and how all the other, obviously, uh, Italian mobsters hold him in contempt, hold him as lesser than. There's that first scene where he comes in that you know Dickie and him kind of have a little bit more of a connection that he sees him not. I don't know if you'd say he's an equal. But he treats him with more respect than these other ones yeah. do, in part because of their shared history. But then when push comes to shove, that goes out the window, and he's just it's going to be us versus them mentality. Yeah, and, you know? and I think that what's so interesting about that Harold character, Leslie Odom Jr. is great, he, yeah. always, you know, so he's really good in this. Uh, but that um, he uh, goes to that kind of like performance art, yeah, thing that's just like black that power beat poetry almost. Yeah, yeah. And, and I feel like it's interesting to kind of tie the uh, black power movement with uh, black gangsters in the sense that they were like, in his case, he was like, "I'm tired of working for these, you know, white people." Oh yeah, I mean, even know, it's like black. even the counterculture had an imprint, and even like organized crime of right. that era would have even that, filtered into that. Yeah. Those attitudes. And then he decided, yeah. well. I want to do my own thing. You know, Frank Lucas is in the movie very briefly, and mm-hmm. obviously, one of, you know, pretty much the biggest African American gangster yeah. in history, played by um, Denzel in American right. Gangster. Yeah. Um, and that I think it's interesting that it tied that a lot to that in the sense of this own mini movement within organized crime that I think is the most interesting thing about the movie. Period. Yeah. That I would have actually liked to have seen more of that. Uh, well, I think early on but, we speculated. We I remember we had talked about this in the previous episode, like the ideal movie for this to me would have been really a lot more of that stuff and yeah. maybe a second tier Sopranos prequel yeah. kind of thing. It didn't decide to exactly was, go that direction. It was direction, like a little but, more in the middle Yeah, that, to a point where I think it was still successful. Yeah. Uh, but I would have liked it a little more in that direction. But yeah, yeah that I think, uh, and I think it was such an interesting and very shrewd move because at the very end of the movie, I said it. You know, they had the kind of mid, even beginning credit stinger that happens where basically that uh, Harold's moving in a new, you know, uh, place 
and that there's this white guy there that's looking like all these, you know, black people moving in on my block or whatever, and he just kind of looks at him. And I swear I thought, oh, somebody's going to drive by and kill him, whatever. Yeah. Because I would have assumed that they would have blamed Dickie's death on him. Uh, but plus, they had bad blood already anyway for killing other made men, you know, in the yeah. process. Uh, but that I was very uh, impressed and happy that that didn't happen. That it was like, no, nobody's going to be coming after him. And that worked out. Unless there's some sequel potential going on here. Uh, Which Chase you know, and Michael Gandolfini have both expressed interest in right. maybe pursuing. And uh, so I really liked that stuff in the movie. And I thought that was the best new addition, which is right. in itself a kind of, like, you know, totally alter alternative story of The Sopranos that often was the, uh, you know, black gangs and gangsters in the show were, you know, frankly very, uh, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I guess, like, uh, passe and pretty basic and stereotyped, yeah. you know. Uh, Some would say that too about even the Italian American gangsters. Sure, yeah, and I mean, I mean it, it, and I felt like they tried to deal with that in the show yeah. somewhat. Well, that I, was actively it, conversations right. the characters themselves were yes. having, and but I felt like this was a way more interesting version of such a thing that I think is really, you know, in a lot of ways, deep down, like I've said multiple times now, what the movie really should have been. Yeah. Uh, but it's kind of like what happened with, and this movie is far better than Godfather Part Three. But it's kind of like what happened with The Godfather Part 3, where it's like, it would be better if it weren't a Godfather movie. Like, it would, this would be better if it weren't yeah. a Sopranos movie. Yeah. But, you know... Well, I think we had said, Chase, too, that Chase only knew he could get this type of project made if uh, it was right. Sopranos-related. But, I mean, but again, the movie didn't shy away from that. It no, embraced no, that very openly. No, and I feel like openly. he did want to make a prequel. Yeah. I think that much is clear. Yeah. But I think he also had an idea for another thing that frankly could have been another movie, but I think I mean, it just, I still think the dichotomy works. It's just there's this movie actually has a lot of moving parts that I wasn't expecting. That there's actually a lot happening. Yeah. Um and in that sense, I guess what did you think of uh the mistress character in the movie? Uh So yeah, that character was again uh Hollywood Dick had um uh, we're gonna say her name. I can't quite remember what it was. Uh, had brought her her over from Italy um, to let's see, uh, Giuseppina 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 played by Michelle De Rossi. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, she was good, and she was one of the saddest aspects of the yeah. movie, I think, because she was brought over. Uh, by this American man who abused her, who you know really didn't see her as an individual. She then falls in love with uh, uh, Dicky, and they have an affair. And then he's obviously not giving her the attention she needs, and so he then cheats on him with Harold. And then she's killed by Dicky, and that that was a really sad statement to me in some ways. And the show also played with this, and so this is a way that I think this, I don't know if improved upon the show, but like took something about the show and did it in another way, is about these own characters' relationship to Italian, their Italian yeah. heritage, so to speak. Yeah. That it's something that's frankly more of a necklace than an actual intrinsic part of their identity. Yeah. Because you remember the episode famously in season two where they went over to Italy to visit yeah. and try to make these connections with the Italian mafia. 
And Paulie's like, "Where's the gravy?" Yeah, and, yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> and they right. make fun of him, think he's right. a baboon, basically, yeah. which they're, they well, might not be wrong. wrong. Yeah. Uh, and the the sense of melancholy that they all feel in various ways when they go over there, and it's not quite what they envisioned. That they expected uh, Vito from The Godfather Two. They thought yeah. that was going to be their vision of and. Carmela, and it comes up multiple times that Car- Carmela says even about Tony that he loves both of them, but he likes the second one a little better, especially when Vito goes back to Italy. He really loved that, and he was hoping that his trip to Italy would be that. But that in reality, these people, while they cling to this sense of, I'm an Italian-American, they might know a little bit of the language, but even, you remember too when she's like yelling at uh, Dickie that he understands some of it, says, I don't compete all that, but like, you know, whatever, that there is this sense of that, you know, we're not, we don't, we're, we consider ourselves Italian-American, but ultimately that's just a signpost for this sense of American capitalism and greed that we're given into just like everybody yeah. else. And that's just more of a cultural signpost to make us think that we're really more different than we are. And so I think in a lot of ways she functions not only as a tragic character in her own right, but also as a representation of these characters' uneasy relationship to this Italian heritage that, again, yeah. they see more as a status symbol than they do actually as a genuine aspect of their yeah. personalities or their identities. Yeah, and I think that, you know, I don't want to speak on this because I know very little about it. But, you know, you see a lot of, like, actual modern-day Italian gangster movies like Gamora yeah. or stuff like that. That's a totally different... Uh, you know, criminal underworld than, like, American, the American mafia. Uh, it is... Uh, Which approaches it, extinction now, right, anyway. That, that but thing, that is yeah. a very uh, violent and uh, turbulent and much more youthful, actually, uh, expression of organized crime that came from that, but it's morphed into its own other thing. I don't know a whole lot about this, so I don't want to you know, yeah. act like I'm an expert on it, but what I see of that, a little yeah. bit I know about it, it seems like a totally different, sure. removed thing from that. So yeah, it is interesting, you know, like you said, that uh, that's not a And again, I think it's a, her character is a very sad, tragic yeah. one because she clearly just like wants to be loved and try, and this whole promise, even at that point of what America was, when America was also in the midst of tearing itself apart. Uh, yeah. Both directly with the Newark rights, something like that. And one of the most uh, gripping moments of the movie was in the midst of all that, obviously, when he has his own father, who he just murdered, <coughs> sitting me. beside him in the car as he's driving <coughs> to go get rid of the body. Yeah. In the midst of all the rights going on, and there's literally like, like basically like a mini tank going by with all these National Guardsmen, and they look at him and they go, "Oh, let him through. He's white." They say that quite literally yeah. out in the open. And that, well, he just murdered somebody. And he's laying there and, dead. And, and like, they're yeah. worried about somebody stealing a TV or two or something, which, uh, you know, against the law or whatever. But, I mean, he's literally, there's a dead man that he just killed or whatever. Yeah, and so, I feel like that's kind of and the that's, statement yeah, of the movie in a lot of ways that, yeah. That he's so, just going to be able to get away right. with that and who cares. Yeah. Uh, do you want to see more of these Soprano stories? Uh, you know what's weird? Why not? I never thought I'd say something like that, but I'm just like, yeah. Sure, whatever. I mean, you know, it. We do we need it? No. But do we need a uh, lot of things that we? No, get? no. So. so if you're gonna do, if you're gonna do it like this, yeah. If we're gonna get, if we're gonna get to see us like this, yeah. as he would say, uh, 
Uh, then you know, I mean, it's not the best thing in the world, but it, it, it I feel like, uh, was very interesting in a lot of things it wanted to say that are actually more uh, illuminating and edifying and interesting than something that could have been maybe a little better. Sure. Too. Yeah. Uh, so no, not really, but yeah. I know. You know. Uh, as we said earlier. Tony B was one of my favorite characters yeah. in the show in season five with the uh, uh I, I would I would be interested to see some further delvance between him and Tony, um, or even like a little bit more about Tony and Carmela's courtship before they maybe became married or their early years of marriage. I think that's something that yeah. could be an interesting avenue to explore. Um, because Carmelo played brilliantly by Edie Falco was I think one of the best things about the Sopranos um, and suffered a lot of hatred by fans in a similar way that uh, 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 Skylar White, White on Breaking Bad yeah. did uh, which now, makes no sense to me what's either. fascinating is Carmela is actually a little bit more complicit in Tony's yeah. lifestyle than uh, Skylar was in Waltz um, but anyways I think any of those things would be interesting to see it's one of those things, too, like that whole, and this is something that was only possible in that season five, is that whole triumvirate of Tony, Tony B and uh, Christopher, of that, like, you know, Christopher always felt like he was so close to Tony and Tony was his mentor, and then, oh, here comes Tony B out of prison, and they actually are closer than him. And yep. that whole relationship was ultra-fascinating to me. Right. Uh, also, it was, I think, announced or said that there was an additional scene shot for the movie with um, Edie Falco as Carmela that would have been 2021 Carmela uh, that was not put in there. I don't know what the decision yeah, well, that was or what that even that was exactly. Of course, that would have been exactly. problematic because that would give a definitive yeah, I think statement. that's ultimately what it came down to is they didn't want to give an ultimate definitive statement. Um what did you think about Christopher himself like being the narrator? And it's not even heavily was, throughout. I thought that was either. interesting in the sense of, I mean, it seems kind of hokey and stupid, but I thought it was interesting in the sense that he literally said, it, "To see, it, I think it hits us. It, it just hits differently, you know. But it hits a certain way when you hear him saying, this is the man that killed me,' and it's this little boy, right? You know, I think that, and that's a very maybe that sounds kind of cheap way to do something like that, but I think that's a very effective, interesting." way to do something like that of that uh that he's speaking from beyond the grave of course and that yeah. uh you know it, it's it's adds kinda, an eeriness and a home in nature it's to interesting the film, yeah. I, because early on it immediately i was at the first second i heard i was like okay i don't know about this and then within like 30 seconds i was like oh this is a little bit you know, it should be said too. Last thing we might say about this, unless yeah. you have anything to add, no, there are really some good. allusions to Tony's ultimate fate in the movie. One of which, the earlier ver, there's two versions of Tony actually, because the movie takes place on of half, about half, nearly yeah. 1967 half. and then 1971. So there is a younger version than Tony than the Michael Gandolfini yeah, version. Michael Gandolfini's only in the second half of the movie. Yeah, yeah, and um, of him talking about somebody being murdered in a restaurant or somewhere, and he says something to uh, Uncle Dick like, I, would, I wouldn't want to be that to happen to me, Yeah, as an allusion, of course, to his death, or possible, or whatever the conclusion of The Sopranos is. And then also, even the 
what I thought the movie was going to end on, and I kind of think it should have in some ways. Uh, it went on a little longer, but that's fine. Of him, he was being told, oh, I'm going to, uh, Uncle Dick, I, meet with him yeah. that next day, and him waiting in that little diner for him to come, and he never shows up. That in of itself felt like it was, you know, not being hammy, but like Tony waiting in a diner for something that's yeah. never going to quite come to pass or does, you know, that whole sense of waiting or longing, that to me was a, felt like a quoting of the movie. Well, and Ray Liotta talked a lot in that one section about the wanting he kept talking about, and I feel like that's what the whole story is ultimately about, is it is greed, clearly, yeah. but also wanting same, things more than that that weren't provided for these people, and that's why they became who they are, ultimately. In the, one of the yeah, central conceits so. as well for Tony at the very beginning of season one, even through the whole show of his, uh, his sessions with Melfi, is this whole idea that, like, oh, it was easier back in my dad's day. Like, that's when, or not easier necessarily, but, like, that those were the, quote, good old days. And, like, you know, I wish I was born back then. I'm at the end of this whole yeah. phenomenon. And, well, it wasn't exactly easier all that back then. I mean, even in, that's an interesting counterpoint. I think that was intentional to say, oh, well, back then they were fe feeling like, if not outright extinction, they still had this new competition that they had to deal with in the midst of all these cultural crises. Yeah. Um, as a way to say, well, even Tony's own conceptions of his father's generation were not exactly true yeah. or were flawed as someone who was even kind of there and saw it as a child. You know? yeah. So I think all in all, this makes for an interesting addition to The Sopranos. Yeah. Uh, it's it's lore, a whole lot so better speak. than El Camino, which for some reason got better reception and reviews than this did. Uh, and I find this to, to be better pretty quite a bit better it should but. be said though and i know you, you would agree with this that um better call saul is also part of yeah the now that's Breaking great. Bad verse. That's, well that's the yeah. best thing in it so yeah uh but yeah with el camino it was a sequel and it got to the exactly the same ending as you're kind of like, what did. was all that yeah. about so whereas this you know was more but you didn't need it but it filled in some interesting gaps and so right. yeah and one thing, last thing I'll say, I promise, about this, is that um, we gotta get to those so games. much of, I've heard David Chase say this over and over again, and he's a misanthrope, so I know he feels miserable about everything. It's kind of what's almost charming about him, yeah. is how much, when you watch Sopranos, and you really notice this the more you watch it and the more times you've seen it, is how, many, how often people are lying to one another all the time. Everybody's lying. Whether it be Tony sitting with people in Satrials, whether it be to his wife, whether it be to his therapist, if you see the full structure of who this person is, you just see that all they're doing is lying all the time. Lying to themselves, lying yeah. to other people. And even this whole revelation that actually it was Uncle Junior who was the orchestrator of this murder only adds to the dimensioning of the lying and the backstabbing that is the, literally the backbone of this whole world to begin with. You know what I mean? Yeah. It like goes back to that, making it that even an origin. So I would recommend watching it. Uh, we saw it again on HBO Max. Yeah. And, uh, you know, if you have a chance to see it in theater, yeah. why not do that? Yep. So, speaking of, you know, people basically being objects of terror and destruction from artists who themselves are putting themselves in a position of God, Funny Games from 1997 is what we're going to be delving yep. into today. So, Levi, why don't you hit us up with some of the details of Funny All Games? Alrighty. You ready for You ready for this one? Probably not. Yeah. We're going we're gonna to do it anyways. All right, so... Funny Games is a 1997 Austrian 
psychological thriller film written and directed by Mikael Hanukkah. Um, and the plot, of course, revolves around uh, these uh, this family that goes on this kind of uh, vacation, trip, vacation yeah, yeah. of a kind of house they own. Uh, Do they own it or they rent it? I think I can't... they own it. I'm okay. pretty sure because I think they're pretty rich. Yeah, comfortable uh, upper middle class. And these uh, two, you know, young adult men, uh, you know, infiltrate their home and torture them to death. It's a fairly easy so. movie to quote yeah. pitch to people or say yeah. this is what it's quote about. Um, pretty clearly. Yeah, but it, it's of course about so many other yeah, things right. on top of that. I mean, as far as just what the story right. is, that's uh, like this, you know. But it's yeah. a home invasion movie, but then it's like, of course, directly implicating the audience. But And we've uh, said this last week, and we might talk about this later. He also remade this movie about yeah. ten years later in America. Yeah. Uh, and he wanted to make this movie in English, yes. right? Yeah, and in, in America. In America. Yeah. Uh, but it couldn't get the funding for it at that time. Right. So I decided to do this version and this version did have a cult impact here in America, uh, and it's only grew over the years. But and I don't even think the later remake he did was all that widely, widely seen. Even no, uh, this, it was more compared to this movie. I mean, more right. than anything, and it was kind of a disappointment because it's a shot-for-shot shot remake of his own movie. Uh, yeah. So it's very strange. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I, I mean, I can run through the the cast but you know frankly are there people we haven't seen and yeah, I mean, we're the, not the, we're not super familiar with the no, Austrian and, film scene. and the only people I've seen from this in other movies are Ulrich Moo and uh, Arno Frisch who were both in uh, Benny's video yeah another uh, Mikhail Hanukkah movie so uh, you know but I'll list their names here yeah. because they deserve to be mentioned Suzanne Lothar is Anna Schober she has a lot she has to do in the movie she's the mother uh, and a lot of the movie rests on her, I feel like. Um, and I think she's quite good, uh, you know, for what she has to do. Yeah. Uh, Ulrich Moo is uh, Georg Schrober. Uh, he's, of course, her husband and the father. Uh, it's interesting, you know, Bill Jabiri talked about in his uh, write-up for uh, kind of essay for the Criterion Collection, uh, which is very good. Uh, that he talked about how, you know, him as a man is a little bit of a different kind of rationale, I guess, than her because she's far more clairvoyant in knowing that this will not end well. Right. Uh, but that uh, they, but that he thinks, oh, I can reason with them and right. eventually this can be dealt with. And of course, it cannot. Yeah. Um, but so he's kind of an, another instrument. And he has to play, he, he has to play a hard role too because he's playing the whole movie having his uh, kneecap smashed by a golf club. So he's having to play pain the whole movie, which is really, that would be a hard performance to And it's honestly, with, it's know. interesting that you put it in comparison with him and his wife as all three of the characters who are the victims in this movie have various levels of self-awareness. Yeah. Uh, the child, obviously, being totally innocent, naive, yeah. subject to whatever's going to happen to him. The you know the dad male character husband character thinking well there is some escape we can get from this like maybe we can reason with him or whatever the wife being very clear to her what's likely going to happen and then the ultimate level of self-awareness is for our two uh, perpetrators who themselves are aware that they are yeah. in even a movie it should be yeah. said we'll talk and, about that notion right. later uh 
So, yeah. And then uh, Stefan, I'm going to try to say his name right, Hosinski uh, as George Georgie Schrober Jr. Uh, of course, like you said, he, I think he's a good child performance one. He plays innocent very well, I think, you know. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, we have Arno Frisch and uh, Frank Gehring as Paul and Peter, who are the two uh, uh, intruders and murderers. Yeah. Uh, do you have anything you want to say about them? Is I, I mean, I can think of a lot of things I could say. But. I think they're right on the money for what yeah. the, this movie is trying to communicate um, about this sense of perverse joy that particularly men of their 20s are looking to exercise throughout the rest of the world or in terror of other people. Yeah. I think that, that they very clearly, among other criticisms I'll say about this movie, one thing I wouldn't say exact, I, I would say good for it is that they're on the money for what this these performances are calling for yeah. for those characters. Yeah. You know. um, Arno Frisch is Paul. Uh, I haven't seen Frank Gehring in anything else, so I can't speak to him. But... Uh, that Frisch, of course, is the uh, I said the titular character in Benny's video, and I'm going to kind of talk about that movie in a little bit when I talk about uh, the other uh, Hanukkah movies I've seen. Um, but that uh, he is a very interesting. He's I, this is a strange thing to say, but I think at least in these two movies, he's very much a John Paul Belmondo of his uh, generation. Uh, that he's this kind of uh, young, you know. Uh, you know, well-built kind of guy, but he has this kind of, uh, you know, uh, evil yeah. about him. Frankly, I watch uh, Benny's video. It's strange because that whole character, uh, he's a young boy. He's not very old, but uh, that, um, well, I can kind of talk about that movie. Yeah. Go ahead and talk about it now. But that movie is about this uh, pretty well-off boy who has this uh, film camera uh, and the, or this like kind of well, I should say a, a video camera, and uh, that he uh, I guess accidentally is a strange word to use, but because I don't know how this could be an accident, but accidentally kills this uh, girl uh, friend of his uh, with a cattle gun in his room and films it. Uh, it he was filming it or filming already. And he find he he has a sense of remorse about it, I guess. But it's very uh, over time. I guess he kind of has a remorse, but uh, you can tell he's been. I mean, like all of Hanukkah's films, he's been desensitized by television because there's one. The movie opens with a pig being killed with a cattle gun on on uh, on a video yeah. recorder that he likes to watch that for some reason. Uh, and that, uh, you know, the whole movie's ultimately in the end about his parents, one of them played by the father of Ulrich Moo, uh, that he, uh, they're basically helping him get off from it and kind of covering the whole thing up. Uh, it's a spoiler to say that in the end, I know you haven't seen the movie, but you probably don't mind, I'm sure, for me to no, say No, I'll watch but, it one day, but yeah. But that the, uh, it comes out and he implicates his parents and they go to jail. Uh, and he tells on them basically for helping him cover it up, uh, and that it's a very interesting movie that I don't have much of a desire to rewatch. It's a very uh, like <laughs> most of uh, Hanukkah's films; they're very uh, it's very uh, unpleasant, nihilistic to, uh, to yeah. view. 
Uh, but I think it's I think it's an interesting movie, but it's my least favorite of his that I've seen. But anyway, he's quite good in that, more or less, to say. Yeah. Arno Frisch, but he's playing a younger performance, obviously. He's older in this. Um, and then Frank Gehring is Peter. Um, it's interesting that Paul is more of the confident one, and Peter's a little bit more self-conscious uh, and kind of, uh, uh, you know, a more meek, I guess, murderer, I guess is yeah. what we call it. Uh, and then quickly run through some of these other people. Christoph Banster as Fred Berlinger and Monica Zoll- Zollinger as Eva Berlinger. Uh, they're like the neighbors. Yeah, they're uh, the neighbors because the movie starts as that's been happening to them the whole time uh, before everything else. And the, uh, they say, oh, they're sons of a friend of mine or whatever. Yeah. And it's kind of strange because they immediately see that there's something weird going on but they're like okay move on but what the what's interesting about the movie is that it tricks you into because I thought for most of the movie I didn't put two and two together I thought why are these people doing this when they're like friends of the neighbor right wouldn't the neighbors be like why would they not be afraid of this happening next door and then halfway through the movie the boy finally goes over to that house to try to get away and finds all the you know the people dead over there and you realize oh they didn't know them and they've been moving around and doing this to different people. Right. That's also what happens at the end of the movie, too, after this family is dead. Um, but so they're barely in the movie, of course. Uh, and then Doris Kutzman as Gerda. Uh, she's like another friend of this family's that lives a little ways away, kind of near them, that comes by to see them at one point, and they have to do the same routine, basically, of that. Yeah. Uh, and then Wolfgang Gluck as Robert. I don't really remember him in the movie. Uh, but anyway, so that's all. And uh, Horses is made in Austria. Uh, it's in German primarily, but it was uh, sort of in, in some of it's in French. Um, and I'm not seeing any money here about it. Uh, but it was a uh, it was, it was a, successful, I think, yeah. on home video uh, yeah. and whatnot. Uh, before we dive in more, much more into this yeah. movie, which we have a lot of thoughts to say. Um, I did want us to talk a little bit about this. This is our very, again, first foreign language film on the podcast. So naturally, if you hear anything in the background, it's not going to be in English. It's going to be in, you know, German German or French. Um, and, you know, obviously we primarily watch English language films yeah. being in America. Um, but we do love a lot of foreign language films as well. Um and one thing, it, this this movie wasn't this for us, but one thing I was thinking about that is interesting and in how it relates maybe to the horror genre or whatnot is that for a lot of people who are getting into movies, genre is the entryway through yeah. which people get into uh, other foreign language films, especially horror, I feel like, more than any other thing in the world. Um, but also horror movies... Crime films. Uh, crime films, uh, even some comedies, musicals. I mean, Bollywood, there's a lot of people yeah. get into that. Yeah. you know. The, and so foreign language films, for a lot of people, are entered into through the lens of, um, oh, well, I like this. I've heard, there's this weird Korean horror movie. I've got to see that, or this Japanese horror movie. I was trying to think, for me, what got me more into foreign movies. I think, honestly, it had a lot more to do with directors I liked <laughs> of the new Hollywood generation that I was getting into saying they were inspired by this, quote, French New Wave yeah. or, like, this, these other foreign films. And I think, for me, that was my formal introduction right. yeah. to foreign cinema was those directors talking about, whether it be 
uh, Truffaut or Godard or Fellini or Antonioni or, you know, these like uh, mostly European directors yeah. uh, or art cinema, European art cinema of the. Or Kurosawa. Kurosawa. Japan. Yeah. Another big one. And for, yeah, a lot of people like, ooh, a Japanese samurai movie and like. That's what a lot of Kurosawa's movies have. And even into. I think for a lot of people, not for me, this was not a thing, but just the cinema of Peter Weir being from Australia yeah. being an international success, or a lot of English uh, films as well, like from England. And so like, we, in particular, I mean, some of our favorite directors are foreign language yeah. directors, uh, and Vin Vendors. He's one of my very favorite directors, but he's also made some movies that are in English yeah. and are a little bit more. Know, accented by America in general, yeah. like something like Paris, Texas. But I mean, even his, you know, um, the road trilogy. I mean, Alice, Alice in the City. city. That some of that takes place yeah. in New York, but that's still yeah. mostly in German. So I really love those. What about? And it's a very, very big, broad question. Yeah, we talk about this. What about the joys uh, of foreign language films to you? Do you find and or things that have you responding or going to yeah continually. well it's funny because my joke answer is it's like if asking me why do I love uh, cake because it tastes good why do you like movies good. yeah uh, right, but, yeah. Uh, I but I mean we've yes, no, we got to deal with the honest right. truth is that most people maybe even listen to this podcast uh, and sometimes through no fault of their own they don't know where to find them don't watch a lot of foreign language cinema well know? and I th- and my go to answer I guess that I just came up with is you just get to see movies that are made differently I mean, and communicate uh, different worldviews, yes, different lifestyles. A movie like yeah. this uh, does not get made in America. It just does not happen. Uh, I mean, horror movies get made, thrillers get made. There are movies that are far more violent than this yeah. uh, that get made here. But a movie like this, and other so many other movies, but like this, um, just pushes the audience to a breaking point that. Uh, I just don't think that mainstream American uh, viewers can... Every once in a while, uh, something will slip through the cracks, yeah. but not... It's like Natural Born Killers or something. But, yeah, I really do think that a movie like this just doesn't exist in the American mind, I, you know, yeah. as, as a movie that people go see. Um, but, and particularly, I'll talk about what I, what I find interesting about his style later on. But, I mean, some of the first, and for me, some of the first four films I ever saw were the... Uh, Leone, Sergio Leone yes, westerns yes, yeah. uh, of just a totally different way to approach westerns that obviously has had far more of an impact on modern westerns than romantic westerns did. Um, well, they had and, some of that impact because they were an alternative yes, to right. that. That's yeah. what, so like now in modern yeah. cinema, I feel like we go to the well of the good, the bad, and the ugly more often than something like The Searchers or uh, Night Darling Clementine or whatever. Yeah. Uh, but, um, yeah, I th- so that's, I mean, one of my favorite foreign filmmakers is uh, uh, Michelangelo Antonioni. Um, and, it, but, and it's funny because my favorite movie of his is in, guess what, an English language movie called mm-hmm. Blow Up. Uh, but there's also but, not a lot of dialogue in that no, movie and, at and all, No, and what actually, I was going to say is that the, the language of the, the cinematic language yeah. of it is so... European and Italian. I mean, it's very yeah. not that. Yeah. And of course, that would filter into New Hollywood and and even movies in the fifties and sixties a little bit before that. Um, but another one, of course, is Bergman. Um, yeah, his, Bergman, his yeah. films. Uh, 
I mean, one of my favorite, and I think one of the best movies ever made in general, is Fanny and Alexander. Um, and that's a movie that uh, is, you know, very like it's it's a family movie. It's a movie about a family. It's not a family movie, believe yeah. me. It's got a lot of things in it that are not that. But uh, it's about children and coming of age in a way that so many other American films just could never be that way. The scope. And the, you know the the surrealism, uh, the different things that just don't make it into American movies. So I think that that, like I said, that's I guess my main answer is like just seeing things that are different because not most movies in the world obviously replicate American movies, but most movies overall aren't American. Right. So the therefore, yeah. there are a lot of other things that are going on in other places that you know. And also, it's just a way to that, get to know the rest of the right, world and yeah. like to see other parts of the world that are not yeah. in America. I know um, another thing too that I think about with Bergman and Truffaut and Godard, and the, you know those filmmakers of that era, yeah, uh, two of which were French and Bergman mm-hmm. was Swedish. But um, is that there was a moment, and it didn't last very long, but in the fifties and sixties, where there were an above average amount of art house theaters in the country. I'm not saying there was one on every corner necessarily, yeah. but you had you know major-ish cities across the country, there was an art house theater or a movie that showed something a little different. In some ways, you know, foreign film can be more accessible now due to streaming, due to home video, due to, you know, finding things online like that. But there was a genuine time in American life where those movies had an above-average chance of being seen. Yeah. I mean, you don't get as many jokes in some of those 70s Woody Allen's movies in there that are parodying or paying homage to Bergman unless people themselves are actually seeing yeah, Bergman right. films. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, again, I think, you know, you do have the success of certain directors like Bong Joon-ho, who is literally one best yeah. director, best picture for Parasite, a movie that we didn't particularly love all that much compared yeah. to other ones. Um, but South Korean cinema in general oh, is I, one of our I favorite love, film I scenes. I love you know? Lee Chang-dong. Yeah. His films are my favorite uh, he's probably my favorite acting foreign filmmaker that I can think of. Uh, and it's a shame because, you know, uh, and Parasite's quite good. I liked it. Yeah. You know, whatever. I'm just not that crazy about Bong Joon-ho, but uh, I've only really seen, I guess, that and Memories of Murder, though. So I can't Memories really of say Murder that I've seen. And, that, and I like that movie. Uh, but I can't say that I've seen a lot of other movies. Yeah. Of his, but I think that the host, uh, I frankly kind of shrugged at. Yeah. Uh, but I did. I would do that with any American horror movie yeah. or monster but movie. But I think so. that Lee Chang Dong's films, particularly uh, Peppermint Candy and uh, Burning and Burning and Secret Sunshine, right. I really like too. Uh, that those movies uh, are a little more, I guess, uh, humanist in their, uh, I guess, exploration. Burning a little less so because it's a little more, a little bit more of a horror thriller yeah. a little bit more genre movie but especially Secret Sunshine and Peppermint I mean Peppermint Candy that's a movie I think about all the time yeah. uh, that I think is a really pretty great uh, movie that's probably you know one of the best so many movies of the 90s in a lot yeah. of ways and also it would I would behoove me not to mention uh, Wong Kar Wai um, yeah. Hong Kong and, and John Woo yeah. as well now, John um, Woo, and, he had a genuine breakthrough yeah, in the sense he um, came and made some fairly big American yeah. movies as far and as... And that's happened to people, you know, like Roman Polanski, for example, who, of course, you know, Roman Polanski, 
screw him. Yeah. But, you know, that he made, like, knife in the water and, and like, cul-de-sac in kind of Europe and then would come and, to make uh, Rosemary's Baby in Chinatown and other... So that happens. And the same thing happened with Antonioni with making Zabriskie Point and The Passenger. You know, this happens, yeah. you know, a lot. But, the, yes, like, John Woo came and made, like, Hard Target and Face Off and Mission Impossible 2, but that he, of course, had made movies like, of course, The Killer... Um, and uh, A Better Tomorrow and Hard Boiled, which is one of my favorite movies. I, I mean, everybody says that. And again, but, a lot, for a lot, of, another big gateway for people getting foreign movies, there was a whole period of 80s, 90s Hong Kong action yeah, movies. Oh, yeah, which, uh, which are great. And, and then like also, even uh, City on Fire, which is pretty good. Uh, and and the Johnny Toe films, too. Which Jackie Chan is obviously right, a Jackie superstar, Chan, course, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, so... Uh, that's another way too in general actors that you see pop up in yeah. Hollywood movies a lot of people say oh what have they been in and they look and find this whole like and uh, one of my favorite movies that I saw last year for the first time was Irma Vep, um yeah. which uh, of course is about it's an Olivier Assayas movie which we're big we're quite big fans of him mm-hmm. love yeah, he's him great. Uh, and uh, the, that Maggie of course Chung is about Maggie that. Chung yeah. being a big Hong Kong action star and just star in general coming to France and making a movie and kind of her stardom. Uh, and apparently and, the, I've heard know. that there's a lot of in-jokes and things in particular that people involved knew knew about that contemporary era of French cinema Yeah, that they would immediately get. Now, we're not as immersed in that, right. but it, we can still appreciate yeah. what the statements yeah. are being right. made in a roundabout but, way. So we're kind of going all over the place, yeah. but I guess that the, an- the answer for me is that what I love about them is seeing things in a totally different way and getting to see experiences that are totally different i mean two three other movies that i saw last year that i thought really did that for me were the three colors uh red uh white or, or excuse me blue white red is yeah. the movies um which are from his name is escaping me uh uh that directed those he's actually a polish filmmaker um christoph uh Kislowski, yeah, uh, I guess they say that. But that those movies, you know, especially that second, which my favorite of those was probably Blue or Red, but that I thought that White was very interesting because that was a French movie, but it was a lot about Poland, too. Uh, so that would, so that's just something that even in these other movies you're seeing, and he himself is Polish, Kislowski, but that you're seeing these, this. Conversation that's happening between other film languages and and and, uh, cultures that is very interesting to see that doesn't happen as much in America as it does. I feel like sometimes in Europe or Asia or wherever. Um, Uh, And another fascinating thing too: this isn't foreign language, but even watching British film, yeah, is its own. Um, yeah. international as uh, a, a gateway into understanding things from another and perspective, and even some Cronenberg films from Canada yeah. too. Yeah, that's a good point. Way. Yeah, so, and yeah. so because I mean we've mentioned them in the past, but Powell and Pressburger, those films from oh, the forties yeah. are literally feel like manna from heaven. They yeah. literally feel like that. Yeah, if God was a filmmaker, some of these would be the movies yeah. that you would envision God Himself to make. It's beautiful. Yeah, um, and so. Yeah, I know it's a very basic thing to yeah, ask, but, but it's just this yeah. is our first foreign and international the, and frankly, film to talk about. And frankly, the only reason so. we're not doing this more often is because we think it's a little more difficult to niche, yeah, to get a hold of to get a hold of uh, 
and to do a commentary of because we're also having to read the subtitles because we don't speak German, so we're having the kind of and that's a thing. That's a common complaint you'll hear from people. I don't want to read my movie when I'm watching. Yeah, and I don't have any problem with that. Clearly, we don't. But uh, there is a certain practical aspect of that. It is true. Not that it's bad that it's another language, but that your attentions are divided. Yes, and like you. I, w- I wish I could speak German so I wouldn't have to watch the subtitles so I could just take yeah, in more right. of the performances or more of the staging. or what- I mean, there is a certain practical aspect to that I do certainly appreciate, even though I think that if you make that decision, you're shutting off so much of yeah. cinema that you'll never <coughs> see otherwise. Uh, <coughs> if you decide to take that path, yeah. you're literally limiting yourself and limiting the beauty and the joy of cinema yeah. by saying that. Yeah, you know? I agree. Uh, but as I said, for a lot of people, this was a movie like these or thrillers or horror movies from around the world or their intros into, I mean, the Giallo film from Italy. Yeah. I mean, that's a huge thing for a lot of people. Um, and this comes at a particular point, obviously, the 90s, era that birthed me. You were just uh, outside of that. or Yeah, you were at the end of the 90s. So yeah. You, yeah. I don't know why I was thinking you weren't. I don't know. For whatever reason, I just imagine you had the birthday of like 2001 all of a sudden. I don't know why. Yeah, uh, I don't know either. Uh, okay. But just, I guess that's in. what I mean, yeah. I guess, is that I'm, I I do have memories of the 90s, uh, not as deeply as the 2000s. So, yeah. um, but this comes at this whole sense of like the end of an era, 90s postmodernism, which was huge at the time. A movie that we mentioned last week that I think this very much works in a certain concert with is Scream, yeah. uh, which came out in 96, I believe, right before yeah, this. This is not um, And Scream is in of itself about a duo or a pair of murderers, young murderers, who are staging these sort of murders or killings. And for them, there is a weird, weird twi- sick, twisted, demented message of sorts. They believe they themselves to be communicating. And I think certainly the characters in this movie themselves be, seem to be communicating. Yeah. Um, how do you think these films compare... Um, and what do they have to say maybe about the moment in which they were produced or um, conceived of or released in? I think that actually, well, first of all, this might sound like a weird place to start, So, but then we'll talk more about him in a moment, but that I think that the two most quintessential filmmakers of the 1990s actually that I've seen are Oliver Stone and Mikhail Hanukkah um, because... I've said this before, something I'm fascinated by, and we talked about this, I think, recently, is what a violent decade the 90s were. uh, In reality, because they they have the stigma of being, oh, it was the calm before the storm. Um, Which I think, frankly, only started to really set in until after September 11th and the terrorist attacks. In the same way that the 50s were not really seen as the 50s until the 60s. Yeah. You know what I mean? Right. And so there's this retroactive fiction that takes place and, oh, it was a, quote, better, more simpler time when, as you said, the 90s, we've talked about this recently on the pod and ourselves, it was a fairly violent, tumultuous decade, like yeah. any decade. On really a global is. scale. Yeah. Not only in America, of course, but especially in Europe with the uh, collapse of the Soviet Union, that that opened up all these new political factions, and uh, it was kind of this, like, the floodgates were opened, and, you know, all these companies, countries rightfully wanted to debate over how they would govern themselves but that often 
resulted in obviously ethnic uh, cleansing violent yeah. and uh, expressions of that. So therefore, it was a very unhealthy uh, and evil and uh, troubling uh, moment. Uh, but that. But things must uh, have been great here, though, too, in America. Right, Nothing yeah. happened bad, yeah. right? Oh well, let's see. We've got the. This might seem like a very specific personal thing, but like the O.J. Simpson, yeah, murder and or O.J. Nicole Brown Simpson, all that. Yeah. Um, you've got even in a weird way the success of Nirvana and what that is like about yeah, this, and that music yeah. and communicating and the conclusion Grunge of that the 90s, and yeah. the conclusion of all that. You have the Oklahoma City bombings. Um, you have the '96 Olympic bombings. Um, the Waco siege. The Waco siege. Uh, I mean, you name it. There, Ruby and then, Ridge was in the eighties, right? That wasn't in the. Uh, I'm not quite sure. Uh, the very conclusion of the decade. Uh, no, that was in 1992. That's kind of what okay. I thought. Yeah, uh, uh, and then yeah, with uh, Columbine. Columbine, which uh, there's a certain relationship. The World I Trade think, Center bombing, right? Well, yeah. Uh, so the 90s was a very violent decade. Uh, but again, as someone who remembers the 90s as a child, yeah, who had a very and even let me also just say even like the Lewinsky scandal, yeah. as like a thing that was in the culture was obviously not a healthy thing, no matter however you look at it. Um, that it, again, as a child, I was concerned about Power Rangers. I was concerned about the X Men animated series that makes not a lick of sense sometimes. Uh, but you know, I was, I was Toy Story. I was consumed with childish yeah. things. But now I look back on all the things that happened and they were in the background of my childhood that I wasn't even aware of or was vaguely aware of sometimes. Like, oh, wow, there was a lot of awful stuff going on back then. And yeah. as is the case with any era, I'm not going to act like the 90s is all that special in that way. I mean, yeah. every era is filled with this multitude of sins and hypocrisies. Yeah, so therefore, yeah, I think that... Uh, and I'll talk about more of the specifics of why that is with Hinnikun when we... Uh, Hanukkah when we talk about it, but as far as uh, this in relation to Scream, uh, both these movies are obviously obsessed with media uh, as uh, a you know uh, conduit for violence and... I think and, Scream you know, is more actively... The characters are talking about these yes. things a little more. It feels yeah. like an internet message board in that way yeah. from the 90s of like, remember the, remember in Halloween where this happened? Yeah, and that's a little Friday more dialogue-based. You know, like, yeah, and this is a little more uh, uh, cinematic, technical-based yes, like yeah. uh, cues. And so yeah. that doesn't make it more intelligent inherently, but it's trying to... It's just a diff, It's a more arty version sure. of something like that. Um, but what I think where Scream goes right in a way, but also is troubling, is that it in itself is a popular horror film. Yes. It's trying to deconstruct uh, horror right, films. And it's coming from a horror filmmaker. Right. Uh, whereas uh, Hanukkah's films, he's not inherently a horror filmmaker, but his movies are very horrific um, in a lot of things that happen, and he seems to be very much a social filmmaker in a very annoying way though in a lot of ways um but whereas Wes Craven also made a movie that was incredibly fun and uh entertaining movie which is you know kind of dangerous in certain ways for what the movie's actually trying to say yeah do you Uh, think it waters it down at all by the fact that a movie that's trying to say you know what maybe horror movies are unhealthy to inspire a franchise of horror movies yeah I mean what what does that mean? 
I don't know. And, and Does that mean Wes Craven's know, a hypocrite? I, Does that yeah, mean, like, I mean, yeah. I don't know what the answer to that and is. And I think it's interesting because he's somebody who had made horror movies for 20 years. And, uh, you know... Uh, just say Kevin Williamson was the writer and conceiver yes, initially but, uh, of that movie. I just want to make that clear. I yeah. Um, but that... Yeah, so that, I guess, it, it's weird because I feel like both movies are kind of saying the same thing. Uh, but that Funny Games is far more uh, provocative and finger-pointing at... Because I think that's one problem with Scream, is that fans of it sometimes, I feel like, don't even get what the movie... It's Oh, Ghostface looks cool. It's implicating yeah, them. Right. Uh, I mean, yeah, the two, the two villains are uh, over-eager teens who are obsessed with horror movies and have one can say being warped by the sensibilities of those movies to enact their own version of yeah. horror cinema. Um, you know. I think both of the movies share an incredible uh, technical sense about themselves as far as the way they film uh, the horrors that yeah. happen. And they're very adept. I mean, one thing a lot of the reviews right. that we read for Funny Games mentioned was that the movie's not nearly as violent as no, you think it is. No, and I said that is, yeah. when I first saw it, and I didn't know that people kind of said that about it, because I was like, is it just me, or did it, did it seem less bad than... Even the movie we're going to talk about next week actually is similar, and that it actually doesn't show as much as people uh, remember it does. Um, but that, yeah, it's actually pretty reserved. Um but that it's still impressive in the sense of that it still makes you feel when you walk out that that, you know, right. is what you saw. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, so. again, I think it's uh, it's weird because, you know, deep down I love Scream, and I, and, I don't, and I think it's maybe a marginally better film. But then again, another part of my brain goes, yeah, but Funny Games is making an unpleasant movie, and I don't like watching it. But I feel like it is more effective in some ways in making me not want to watch something like this. Yeah. That it is it is saying, no, you should feel bad for wanting to watch something like this. Uh, but what's the line between Henneke is teaching us or telling us something? Or, uh, excuse me, Hanukkah, Whatever. I'm still it adjusting his name. Yeah. And how much is he indulging in it himself and is not taking any sort of blame for making me feel bad for something he's, quote, orchestrating or doing. You know, what's yeah. the line between that? And I don't know what the easy answer is yeah. to that. Well, and I haven't seen the later half of his career, but I've only seen, you know, the first kind of part of it. But the, it seems that with movies like The Piano Teacher and Amore, uh, that he made movies that were more uh, inherently humanist. Yeah. Because one of the things I like about his movies, I guess... Which I should just uh, say real quick, usually happens as directors get older. Yeah. Or artists in general uh, get older. And I guess is it all right if I go ahead and talk about his movies? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, like, what I find interesting about his movies, actually, and this sounds like a negative towards them, but it's how clinical they are. They're very, uh, especially The Seventh Continent, Benny's Video, and 71 Fragments of a Chronology of Chance are all movies that are <laughs> very... That again. Yeah. Movies that are all very... They have the same look about themselves. They're very, like, uh, monochrome, kind of... They look almost like they're like they're sick, in a weird way. Like, the movies themselves yeah. are buckled under the weight of what the movies are about. Right, right, yeah. And that it looks like that. I mean... And they're in decay, like, you know... Yeah, and so, his yeah. framing I find very interesting. I mean, The Seventh Continent, that whole movie is about a family who wants to kill themselves... 
because of living in the world or whatever. Like, there was a famous scene in the movie where they keep going to this one car wash, and the last time you see him in there, the, the mother's just, like, crying, like it's just too much to be in the car wash, which sounds like it's funny, you know, to say that. But, and I don't really get that, in a sense, about what he's talking about when he says that. Like, I don't get what it means to be overwhelmed by the world as a whole. Like, I, I, and I'm not saying that to say that isn't a valid, like, you know, question. I just don't understand that. But, but that there's these scenes in the movie where they're, it's basically showing them selling their car, taking the kids out of school, going into their house, and they literally take, like, sledgehammers and destroy everything in their house. And there's these, like, shots. I remember there's one shot particularly of the dad taking a sledgehammer and smashing a, uh, and it takes, it, like, films it for a little while, him, like, smashing a, uh, a, uh, like, an armoire or whatever, or, like, a vanity table. And just the, uh, the clinical nature, but yet also the oppressiveness of images like that, I find that stick with me in ways that I don't always love thinking about. But and, it, and they're in it, these, uh, I would imagine, these very clearly straightforward domestic spaces. Yes. And, and, that, and that and that sense has been created within a world that looks ostensibly like our yes, own, you and, know what I mean? And he likes to brag all the time. I mean, he's a very uh, arrogant, arrogant filmmaker. I mean, yeah. let's just say it. I guess that's a lot. Uh, there's a lot that are. Most, yeah, most but, are. And um, I think it, frankly, in some ways, takes a you to be a little bit of an arrogant person to make a film. But that he ways. talked about supposedly, he said this. I don't know if this is true. That he had seen, I think, in a screening, there's a scene where they flush all their money down the toilet, and it goes on for about two or three minutes of just a stat, just a one take of them keep flushing the money down the toilet. And, uh, and I'm sure some critics out there were like, that's what I was watching the whole time, is yeah. him wasting, you know. <laughs> but, um, which I don't agree with, yeah, this, right, but, yeah. you know, but, um, and that he said, with this sick glee about himself, that he, that people reacted stronger to that than other aspects of the movie that are more, uh, harmful or harmful. harmful yeah. And that, that, that just proves his point, yeah, right. is what he's wanting to say. Uh, so, you know, and it's a powerful image. I won't, and that's what I'm saying. That that movie sticks with me in a lot of ways of some of the imagery of that, of just the destruction of things that are commonplace and part of our lives. And you think you really start to think, do we need all these things? And, all right, you know. sure. But uh, so in that sense, that's interesting. About seventy-one fragments of chronology of chance. Uh, that movie I think is his best film that I've seen so far uh, that that's all about this uh, bank in Vienna that's like, uh, I think it's like Christmas Eve or something and this guy goes in and uh, he's like this tennis prodigy that uh, has all this kind of repressed rage that he goes and does, you know uh, perpetrates this mass shooting at this bank and all these people die and that the whole movie's essentially kind of uh Introducing us to these characters over the whole movie, that all and him, him also, but especially all the victims, uh, and that that movie harps a lot on. I feel like what I've said about the nineties that that he recognized in the moment. I think of like just the uh, it felt like everything was falling apart, like uh, and that there's at the beginning and end of the movie these like uh, Austrian uh, news 
broadcasts that are about all these different things that are going on. Like, I think Somalia was kind of going on at that time. Uh, uh, the Michael Jack That was like when the first stuff came out about Michael Jackson and maybe, uh, you know, did, as we know later, commit the sexual assault on these children and, you know, the, the, all these things, these really terrible things. And then that that bank shooting is just one thing in the midst of all that. And it's kind of, I guess, the whole point is that this is just one news item. You know, another weird thing of our imitating life, too, thinking about, talking about bank shootings, was that North Hollywood shootout that happened in the 90s that later inspired Heat to be impartially made, basically. Or no, Uh, it was that Heat inspired No, that's what it was. Never mind the opposite. Okay. Uh, And so just the cyclical nature, sometimes these things seem to share. Um and again, I was trying to think, what about, not only this movie, but what what are these modes of art maybe trying to communicate or say? I think, and this goes to my love of Don DeLillo, and his prose is a lot of ways about some of these similar ideas of the late 20th century, of particularly like the whole idea of images and home video even to an extent, is I think that some of these artists are trying to communicate, and Cronenberg as well, with something like Crash, I think, um, are trying to communicate the horrors of what happens when people are able to relive relive traumas via home video or via moving images in home video formats that allow you to indulge in, be voyeuristic to, and slavish to images that are traumatic or should not be yeah. seen over and over again. Yeah. And what happens when we have generations of people who see these things over and over again and what breaks in their psychology occur as a result of that. I think yeah. Scream's kind of about that. I feel like this is about that. Um, Crash, I think, to an extent. Yeah. And that's based on this J.G. Ballard novel from you know some years yeah. before that. But the 70s. I but think. a lot of these 90s works and even Inher- uh, not Inherent Vice, but Infinite Jest as a novel to an extent is about... Uh, the accessibility of horrifying or destabilizing images of home video and then that will later become the internet or whatever and what that does to generations particularly of young people who are impressionable by these things and the havocs that they wreak upon the world as a result of that I mean um, it's very eerie to me when I watch Scream to remember that Columbine happened a few years later and that it was again two white men of about that age who perpetrated those acts of violence and terrorism um, and wondering, and you know, there's a whole scavenger hunt, choose your own adventure. People love to go down of what did, did the video game Doom inspire them? Did Marilyn Manson inspire the them? All these killers, like natural born killers, yeah. And like ultimately, those were broken people who made horrible, horrific, reprehensible decisions. Um, what role does art play in that? Now, I don't think it's easy to just say, oh, it definitely is the reason why. Yeah, I don't. But I also don't want to say, well, it shares no relationship to these things either. Yeah. Because I think that is also a not productive, harmful Yeah, because that's how I take. used to feel is that it didn't. But the more that I think about it, the more sometimes I think that it does. Not totally. Yeah. But, um... And so, yeah. by that measure, who is Hanukkah's target with this movie? Who, and I guess, is he trying to ostensibly target all of American culture, American society? Is he trying to target cinephiles who are obsessed with violent images or violent movies and what they do? Is he targeting a bourgeoisie middle class that doesn't really care about the violences of things going on abroad until it happens in their own homes? Yeah. 
all that and more. I mean, what in, in your vision in this movie, who's the target? If you uh, can simply make it one, I think if I can make it one, I'd just say vaguely Western civilization. Culture. Yes, mm-hmm. uh, because you know, and and that was referenced, of course, in I said seventy one fragments of chronology of chance. That in that, uh, uh, it references some things that were you know like capitalism. Somalia, these things yeah. that, and capitalism. Yeah, I mean, there's one. It's one of my favorite scenes in the movie about like people eating at McDonald's. Yeah. And it's just like them sitting there eating. It's just so weird looking because it's like a, it's like a Viennese uh, McDonald's. Yeah. Uh, and just like people sitting there and it just looks so kind of boring. And, I wonder know, if he like, in particular felt a certain push to do this as, he wasn't German obviously but he speaks German, but an Austrian coming off of the end of this Cold War that had totally disrupted Europe for nearly half a century yeah. And then, it, quote, it's over. And what do we have to show for it? McDonald's. That's yeah, what we right, have to show yeah, for it. It's just like, yeah. is that what he's, I think, like, taking issue with, is that this whole us versus them is over, and what won doesn't seem like it's all that yeah. pleasant yeah, of a thing and, to have yeah, yeah. conquered or won with. I don't yeah, know. And Capitalism. The, as far as, you know, the most, one of the most, I think the most famous image of the movie, other than the boy with the uh, pillowcase over his head, is the... Uh, uh, the blood all over the TV. Yeah, and it's like a race, very explicit, like a image, very yeah. uh, probably the most explicit image of the yeah. movie, other than when uh, Peter gets shot. It's like uh, that, I, I was reminded of that image um, as I was reading one of the reviews about it, mentioned yeah. it, and remembered also it's different things being said, but David Lynch smashing the TV at the very yeah. beginning of the opening credits. Yeah, Fire Walk and with me. I think it's but and that in that there's a race going on like an auto race yeah and it's weird because i feel like he's making a he's trying he's trying to make a point there about like you know blood all over the tv like that's all we see and it's like but it's a race not all media is created equal like you know like there is media that is just okay i mean yeah people get hurt racing but but people don't watch sports people don't watch a football game to see somebody carted off the field right. with a concussion. Now, people now, that sometimes happens. watch racing to see crashes, so in that sense, he's probably right. Yeah. But I find that to be a little bit of an odd choice that I don't feel like totally lines up with what he's saying that I think that... So do you think he's, to a certain st- stereotyping what American culture is in a moment I like that? I think so, and I don't think that's accurate. Uh, I think it is in other ways. Like I said, there are people who watch races to see the crashes. I'll admit... When I watch it, oh yeah, that's cool. Well, you want to see well, it? But, you you're know, maybe not watching it for that. But no, when that happens, all of a sudden, the endorphins like, oh, are racing. Man. Like, oh, something exciting. Yeah, no, and you're like, oh, you know, it's watching a train wreck. It's awful, but you can't look away. But then you know, also, the always, when there's thing. that that car crash, you kind of like to see it. But then you're like, oh, but did they make it out okay? Right. Yeah. Oh, I'm off the hook now for right, wanting yeah. to see that. And that's you know? what he's saying, and I yeah. get it. And I think that he's right about a lot of the things he says in this movie. I'm not saying that, but I feel like there are some false equivalencies sometimes made that I don't really agree with. Sure. Uh, but uh, but otherwise, I think that most everything he says in the movie, and like implicating the audience of uh, it happens early on, you know, of uh, Paul looking at the camera and saying, oh, you're on their, their side, aren't you? Okay, let's see how it turns out. And you know, and I think, yeah, you know, one of the most interesting things about the movie, Bill Jabiri had said this, that uh, in the end, they don't make it out. The family dies and the people move And it should be said that it seems as though at a certain point they will. Because one of the most iconic moments of the movie is when um, 
Is it the wife? Yeah. Grabs the gun and shoots, kills one of the uh, perpetrators, yeah. intruders. And according to one of the things we had read, it said that the Cannes audience apparently like cheered yeah. at this. And the Cannes audience, you could write books about oh, reactions yeah. they've had to things over the years. But um, a movie that is ostensibly made for the Cannes crowd, meaning that, oh, it's going to be highbrow. And I say this as someone who respects a lot of the movies that come out of this, yeah. but there's an expectation it's going to be highbrow, it's going to be critical of American culture, American society, the West, even the French in many yeah. cases, um, and that they theoretically would be cheering at the end of the movie for the statement that's being made. Yeah. But that even they, after being subjected to what the movie is, would find a place, oh, I'm going to cheer for what the lizard brain aspects of me wants yes. to happen, yeah. to see these get these two intruders get dispatched with. And that the anger that the intruders have with that, and to go back and literally rewind the movie we are watching, yeah. and to then contradict what we wanted to happen yeah. with what Hanukkah wants to happen. And by virtue of that, making us more aware of yeah, what this yeah. movie usually our expectations of it are and how it resolves itself and the, directly. Yeah. And I think he's that. yeah, and I think that he's pointing at that we want to see. It's like what you said about um, seeing the car crash, uh, race car crash. But then, oh brother, they okay? It's like you want to see these people go through hell. But then it's like, but they get out right, and it's like, no, they don't in this case. Right. And I feel like that is a direct implication that make, makes you walk away pissed off and yeah. frustrated that I think is healthy in a way yeah. because it's, it is saying, but is it right that you normally do that? You know, I mean, yeah. that's the whole point of the movie. I, I'm sure that there's people who are familiar with this movie that are rolling their eyes because this is all very obvious in the movie. Yeah. But, um, in that sense, I think it's a successful film. In other ways, though, I feel like it, uh, well, it's also, yes. like you said, I think one of the not-so-successful things is some of these false equivalencies you see yeah. that he makes. So much so that it makes you aware of how many times is of American films making these false equivalencies yeah. about other cultures. Yeah. Yeah. Because of all the random movies to talk about that get of an enlightenment from, one that several years ago was a Kingsman. Yeah. The not-so-great Matthew Vaughn spy movie, which is now Mark spawned a whole Miller franchise. Wrote, right. Yeah, Mark yeah. Miller wrote the original comic Who's book. his own uh, uh, walking dumpster fire yeah, of complications. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there's this, you know, that's ostensibly a British film. Matthew Vaughn's a British filmmaker and it's about British characters. And Mark Millard's British, yeah. Or, or Scottish. Or, yeah. or Scottish, I'm sorry. Well, yeah, yeah British, yeah. Um, and there's a scene where it shows like this fundamentalist church in like Kentucky or West Virginia. I don't remember where it is. I think it, it was is. Kentucky, I think. And it is like the most over-exaggerated version of what one of those places are. As someone who's been born in the Bible Belt, I've been to plenty of churches in my life, I know what this world is. And I remember watching it and thinking, I get what he's trying to say, and there's some truth in what he's yeah. saying, but the tenor in which he's saying it is not exactly right. And then I hit, I had a hit big enlightenment moment hit me where I'm like, wait a minute, how many times as American movies are we doing that to yeah. other cultures or we're doing this exaggerated, oversimplified version of a worldview, another worldview. And again, some of the things he was saying, again, were correct yeah. in terms of well, the fundamentalist you, idea, yeah. but it made me stop and go, oh, wait a minute, is this... Ha and then another scary thing happened, is this how the world sees us? Yeah. That also set in, and that was also its own troubling yeah. line of thought and to follow, that I'm not 
I, in some ways, I'm glad he did that yeah. to make me yeah. think more about that. Yeah, and even in that sense, I don't think Hollywood understands the South, let no. alone that they can understand another culture. Another culture. So in that sense, like I mean, you know, I think all uh, a lot about uh, the three. Well, even not even beyond Hollywood in our cult in American culture. That people look at the phrase "bless your heart" as an insult all the time. Or a Let me tell you, from people who are Southerners, that is not the case because I have heard so many times in my life people say, "Well, bless your heart," but they don't now, mean that I as an insult. I have heard now, context; yes, it is kind of have, but on yes, the whole, it is no, not, it's yeah. not. And I think that that's something that people don't get at all, and they would say, "Well, you don't get well." Like I'm not trying to be. You know, a jerk, but I actually live well, here. Well, so also, I actually like, that's know, one thing that we yes, know definitively. What is happening. Yeah. So, anybody who believes that, you're wrong. I just want you to know. So, therefore, what does that say about the way we think about other people? And, like we said, in the same way, what does that say about Hanukkah thinking about American culture? I think it's easier to understand American culture because it's so omnipresent yeah. than it. But, in the same sense, if it doesn't even reflect itself right. correctly, then. There's a lot of complications that go, and this just goes into this, you know, the idea of stereotyping and of, uh, you know, just not knowing what, what the reality really is, because you know, deep down, even though you know, watching a lot of these violent things is a problem, deep down, most people who watch these things and get some sort of entertainment from it are not bad people. And really, they're looking for a, a release or a catharsis. And that yeah. I think to implicate people in that, I'm not saying is wrong, but it's like, but you're also, you know, but then you're making the movie. Well, I was going to say, too, like, you know, um, so how much of this should also be aimed at his fellow filmmakers who are yeah. engaging in some of this? I mean, Tarantino was huge at this moment in time, obviously, still is, but like. His origin, and then as you said all, earlier, Oliver Stone. Well, and even even the French extremity. If right. you want to get to Europe, I mean, yeah, those movies like High Tension. I mean, have you seen stuff from that? Yeah, that movie where they're yeah. literally like taking a a rock saw and cutting a guy's head off through yeah. a windshield. Like, I mean, like you know, and like uh uh Carax, You know, yeah. a lot of these movies from uh, France in particular that are in. So how much again? So, how yeah, much of this like, should be aimed at them? As yeah, much too. Yeah, and maybe I guess implicitly that is happening also. Yeah. Um, but and yeah, but, it, but America. It, but guess what? The, We're right. the one. Yeah. Me and you are going to be the ones sitting here watching this, and so when they're pointing the finger, I don't see anybody else in this room. It's naturally yeah. going to be the people who are watching it in whatever moment that is. Um, and in general, this is a good point to transition to the last little bit of this, and. Because I think this movie and the next movie we'll be doing are the most explicitly yeah. gory and or problematic, troubling films that we're going to be talking about with regards yeah. to all this. Now, the next um, movie we definitively really like and think is great. Yeah. Definitively. So, yeah. But it, but in some ways, this, this is about, about that movie. Right, yeah, so, in a roundabout way. Yeah. Why, again, as we said already, why do people watch horror movies? I think there's been a lot of conversation or talk about this. We've already talked about this a little bit last week. For this release of tension, for this release of, you know, I want to go to the deepest, darkest pits of humanity, but then come out the other side as if I voyeuristically went through the journey myself and survived it. Yeah. You know, there's been a lot of buzz right now about the latest Scott Derrickson movie. I think it's called like The Black Phone. Yeah. Uh, Black Phone. Yeah, whatever. the Ethan Hawke movie. Uh, Ethan yeah. Hawke's in. And that's been billed as like Jason Blum himself even said. And then if he's saying this, you know, this has to mean something. All the movies they pr- he's produced. Yeah. Um, the scariest movie that he's produced, uh, yeah. Jason Blum said. 
Um, and if you hear about what that movie's about, it's about very dark, serious, troubling ideas. Yeah. Um, and again, it's been it started to play at like Fantastic Fest, and people were eating it up. It looks like it's going to be one of the next big like horror hits, yeah. so to speak. Um, is it a good thing a movie like that is successful? And I don't know what the it's answer is. It's about a child murderer. Yeah, and like, what yeah. does it say about us wanting to go to those places? Not much good. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what else to say. I mean, we're doing our own little spooktober yeah. here, but uh, that's the reason we picked this movie is because it's a confrontational, angry, uh, dissatisfying movie that I think yeah. is... And again, like, I don't know, like it. Yeah, I do. And, but, but I'm very aware yeah, right. it doesn't yeah. want me to like right. it. And I'm yeah. very aware of what he's doing. And in many ways, I respect that he's provocating me. Yeah. But also, ultimately, I'm like, well, I'm not going out here killing two, uh, killing families of people and right. what, complicitness that I have yeah, in that. Right. But, I, of course, he's not saying I'm going out there and killing people. What he is saying, though, is that why would us as a culture delight in such a thing is yeah. ultimately what he's trying to say. But, like we said, the problem is that he's been making this same movie up until this point consistently about these similar things, about media and... Uh, yeah, and it's almost you know. like, well, if you got such a problem with this type of movie, why don't you make another type of movie right. to work as an alternative yeah. to this? Right. An example I think of all the time, in some roundabout way, is like Jim Jarmusch's films, yeah. which themselves are, if you look at a lot of contemporaries of that moment, his movies on the whole are not violent at all. You do have something like, say, The Dead Don't Die, which is like a zombie movie. But, or even like Ghost Dog, Way of the Samurai. Right. But like, you think about a movie like Stranger Than Paradise or... Down by Law. Down by Law. I mean, yeah. those are movies that communicate some of the same themes about a certain sense of hopelessness in Western civilization and of late capitalism, but are often about people trying to escape somewhere else and are not about people trying to kill other people or like, don't you feel bad for this, blah, blah. You honestly feel in some ways... While the your circumstances may be very removed from like the characters in Down by Law, a sense of why am I not getting what I want out of life? Why am I being falsely implicated in this or that? I just want to escape. I just yeah. want to get away from whatever's. And I feel like, okay, Hanukkah, if you have such a problem with violent media, why don't you make movies that are not violent instead of perpetuating a move a type of movie? In, even in his criticisms, yeah that are still engaging in the very yeah. thing that he decries. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Why don't you just make something else? But that's his that's his job as a filmmaker is to make the movies he feels yeah. as if his muse is leading him to make. Right. So in that way I'm not necessarily criticizing him for that. But Yeah. It's it's just like somebody complain all the time. It's like you get on social media and somebody's always complaining about this or that and it's, you can't help but think, well why don't you A either do something about it change it or be be the change you want to see in the world by your example yeah. if nothing else and in that way I think he could be implicated as much as he's trying to implicate us that okay do something else then and you know and I should say at least through Code Unknown and uh, Cash or Kosh have you say that he didn't do that now the more he may have or even the white ribbon i'm not really sure but like you know some of his other movies or happy end he made recently uh but yeah up until this point that was not a reality for him and even even a little bit after yeah. or the piano teacher as well i forgot to say maybe that is but yeah, yeah. at least not inherently always violent because because i know there's this really infamous scene in code unknown on like a bus or a train 
where Juliette Binoche is sitting there and these two guys getting like a fight and it's supposed to be real like I don't know if it's gory or what it is about it but something about it is like real like violent or yeah. something and like so I've always heard about that I actually meant to watch it before see, we went into this because that's a movie I've actually wanted to watch for a long time anyway but the uh, yeah so like even after this for some years that he's made some other movies that are still like that thing so right yeah but how so many features did he made before this? Uh, well, I know that he made a lot of movies for TV. Okay. Uh, so there, I'm not sure about an exact number, but okay. uh, he also but, made that adaptation. It was a TV movie, but I think it's one of his more famous ones of Franz Kafka's The Castle. Mm-hmm. Um, but this but, was, I guess, more than any of these other movies, something that broke through and had yes, a larger yeah, international following. international success. In yeah. large part likely due to it being a more of a genre thriller horror and it being kind so of controversial uh, yes that it yeah, was that like wow have you seen that no i have yeah right so yeah yeah uh, i feel like it is kind of his doctorate statement on that part of his career uh that it is finally okay this is the most kind of you know straightforward statement about what i've been yeah. saying for years and yeah right so anything else we want to add about uh, this not really other than that i like the movie I find it to be very problematic, but I was so I'm just so impressed by sure. it, even in its eye roll worthiness of it. A lot of things. And I'm, again, it's not a movie I know. particularly care for, but I don't even I would say I hate. I just, yeah. I'm like I, I think in my letterbox box, I gave it like two and a half stars, and that to yeah. me sums up kind of overall I ideas about the movie. Three or three and is a half, that okay? But, yeah. I respect a lot of things you're saying and doing, and a lot of things you're saying are correct. Uh, but are you not still perpetuating yeah. the world you're decrying at the same time. So yeah. we'll walk through those feelings again. But up first, the trailer for the movie. Which is very impressive, uh, like the movie itself. Which, so, uh, should be said, uh, we can't German. put subtitles yeah. in on a trailer. In a trailer. Yeah. So you'll hear a little bit of German. Uh, the music's uh, you'll hear. Uh, you're going to hear it again in a little bit. So, so uh, you're going to hear the trailer for that, and then we're going to dive right into the movie. Ready to play some funny games. Yep. We actually ate dinner because we're ready to throw it up. Yeah. <laughs> funny, funny games. You know, that'd be like, you know, like the comedy Olympics of sorts, if you think about it. But yeah. Not what this okay, is. I don't think there's a whole lot that's actually funny in this movie, though. But you know. So, uh, this being an Austrian film, I'm sure it did get a rating. Oh, it, rated yeah, R. it got a rated R. Uh, uh, we were just joking. We were like, 
come on. Although I did look on IMDb, there is no certification, but I looked under frightening and intense scenes, yeah. and it said, uh, movie is very intense, but most viewers will know what they're getting into. <laughs> That's what I said, really? Yeah, so it's like... So yeah, it's one of those things, yeah. I guess, if you're watching this, you already know it has a reputation. You already likely. know, as we say. So we're right. watching the Criterion Blu-ray. Yeah, um, I bought it just for this. So. Yeah, I believe it's streaming elsewhere. Maybe I on think the Criterion it. Channel I think or, it actually just maybe got put oh, up okay. because uh, maybe because they're doing home invasion movies oh, this fun. month, and it's like okay. I saw Cul de Sac was actually one of those. You yeah, mentioned that earlier. The Desperate Hours. Been to watch that for a long. But time. I'm pretty sure that this uh, is on there, but right. I don't remember. So we're hitting play in five, four, three. Two, one, and from the one we're watching, you got the classic uh, Criterion Collection logo. We forgot to mention Jock Rivette's comments oh. about this movie were uh, <laughs> negative, to say the least. He said he uh, hated it, loathed it, thought it was disgusting. He said he objected to it on practically a moral level. But he also said, then he started talking about a Clockwork Orange. Yeah. Said he objected to that on a moral level and said that it was so f shocking that Jacques Demi cried while watching it. So, I mean, yeah. I'm not even making fun of that. I just think it's funny. It's like, yeah. wow, okay. But, yeah. This movie was not liked by a lot of people. Yeah, it's, it's interesting bringing it up in terms of uh, Clockwork Orange because, you know, it seems like... It, this time in film history about every 10 15 years there was the new big ultra shocking movie that was talked yeah. about it's for like a long i heard time. that that uh version of the painted bird that was made last year was kind of a version of that as a european movie i feel uh, like the closest movies of that we've had in recent years might be uh ari aster's two movies yeah hereditary and midsummer are the closest i can think of to yeah. even getting close to that conversation but in America. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And, of course, at the end of the 90s, you would have something like Fight Club, which is yeah. uh, highly controversial and divisive and talked about. But it kind of goes to the point of what we were saying earlier. You don't have many movies like that anymore that really... That happens in a big popular way. Yeah. Now, of course, uh, this movie begins with the them guessing opera. Yeah. Have I made my thoughts on opera clear before? Uh, have you mentioned that on here? I, I don't know. know. I think it... Listen, I know a lot of people love it. I think all I will say, I'm not going to be insulting towards it like I could and want to be, but um, all I'll say is it's pretty ridiculous to me that there's... And I mean, I know a lot of things are in English. I get it, you know. But, like, that's only ever saying in Italian. Yeah. And it's like, I don't know what that is. I don't know... Yeah. what it's saying it's like but even a movie can be translated a book can be translated right a song if it has to be can be but like opera I mean, that visual is art obviously is. doesn't need any yes drill. and it's like opera i mean sure you can see it when you go see it but a lot of people don't do that they just listen to the opera yeah so i don't get it i don't condone it and i don't have time for it anyway <laughs> that's so, not to say that i uh am like oh yeah they need to get it or anything i'm just yeah. you know as a counterpoint. Yeah. You know. And someone who likes rock music, I think I'd prefer the opera yeah. to whatever the hell this is. I mean, I think it's from some guy named John Zorn who makes a lot of uh, real experimental stuff. So. 
I remember how shocked three going down the road. Yeah. Jamming I remember how shocked I was first watching this. I was just like, "Yeah, what?" As we had said earlier, that in the American version, which we've not seen, uh, Tim Roth and Naomi Watts yeah. play these lead roles. Uh, and Michael Pitt is one of the uh, yeah guys. Right. Uh, But I guess he's off the top rope telling us, this ain't your daddy's funny yeah. games, you know? Like, I would, I'm not sure. I would imagine he didn't tell the actors that what no. would be playing over yeah, this, and right. so I they imagine with them watching the movie, the opera music, yeah, what probably. they would have thought, like, wait, what, like, you know, you know, yeah, who knows, yeah. As you said earlier, that these neighbors are obviously now being subjected to what we're going to see our main yeah. characters be subjected to. And uh, I kind of talked earlier about uh, Hanukkah's other films that they're they have this. All of them look pretty similar the way they look, as far as they look like, you know, that kind of very like sterile clinical look to them. But this kind of looks like that, but it's a little bit looks a little quote I guess better looking, yeah, uh, and a little cleaner. But it still looks pretty monochromatic and yeah. you know. So I'm, I'm trying to think of what he's trying to communicate with this music here that they're listening to. The, oh, they're very upper class, nice, pleasant, unoffensive yeah. people, I'm presuming he's trying to say Yeah. with that. Well, juxtaposed against, of course, that rock music we heard earlier, yeah. which is incoherent nonsense. Anarchy. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I forgot, yeah, they have a dog, too. Yeah. Things happen naturally to the dog. And I know one of the reviews said another big no-no, not only ch hurting children or yep. women, but dogs, too. People take more offense to that than anything yep. else. As they did with the money in the Seventh Continent, I guess. Yeah. He may have just made that up for all I know. You know, I mean, I don't know, but it's like, oh my God, they flushed the money. I, I think like, it frankly has an equal chance of yeah. him lying about that and him and right. people really acting that yeah. way. Very clearly focusing on them golf clubs like they will be used. Yeah. Um, 
it's interesting. I remember this movie. It's only like an hour and like yeah, like hour and fifty minutes. Mm-hmm. But I remembered it feeling longer than that a little bit. Yeah. So we'll see this time, and I think that's part of it because it's so like oh, like you yeah, know, you want to end, yeah. He loves having shots of just like food and like yeah. technology, like. As well, as Patrick once said, we have technology. Yeah. Dog has some feeling yeah. something's up. How beautiful that water looks. Yeah. Ain't like Lake Hickory, you know? Watch the yard arm. It's the only joke we can make about the boat in this movie, so. I don't respect anybody who's like got a sailboat because those are. Yeah. You got to work with those harder, way harder than you do like a one of the motor. I know the home invasion genre of movie is one that I think most people find particularly affecting because it doesn't revolve usually on any kind of supernatural aspects. It's something much more conventional or realistic that could happen to people, you know. Yeah. 
Yeah, that movie, uh, The Strangers, is pretty good. Yeah, I've seen that. That's good. I think that movie was directly inspired in particular by the Manson uh, yeah. murders. Classic running out of eggs, yeah, getting right. a cup of sugar trick, you know. So immediately this guy's just getting more and more suspicious and creepy, obviously, as yeah. conversation goes on. Like, oh, no, I basically broke in. Oh, okay. Yeah. white with the blue is an interesting choice you know? yeah probably stole it somewhere So, like, go get it, you know, like. 
It's interesting the way that shot was where she moved over and he was already over there. Like. Yeah. I couldn't remember how they uh, got rid of the phones from being there. So, yeah, that's what... That's like what makes this one in the beginning particularly disturbing is that he's clearly, uh, you know, doing things intentionally. Right. Getting her skin, but then acting stupid or clumsy at the right. same time. And it's like, you know, that's a, you know, weird combination of things. Unsettling. That's always classic. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, you're sorry, all right. You know, yeah. basically. That's how we say it here. Yeah. Not bless your heart. Yeah. It is... Uh, I wouldn't say this is a, even a criticism of the movie, but something that's passe now is that there'd be one cell phone in this house. Yeah. You know, now everybody'd have a cell phone. And you got the smart TV, and the yeah. security system. One thing I've already noticed that I didn't quite remember about this movie, and I think this speaks to the feeling he's trying to communicate unknowingly, is how long some of these takes are. Yeah. Yeah, because I remember the there's a take later that is particularly long. Yeah, yeah, you know, I that do one, remember but, that one. Yeah. yeah, that's a static image for the most part. Funny game. A funny game. That's what I, of course, remember this about the movie, but just watching it, just how frustrated I am already by this. Is just like this, the like, oh well, yeah, is this? Oh my god, yeah, like please, yeah. 
how annoying it is almost more yeah. than anything. May I and then he just does it anyway. Yeah. But they might make the golfer's kneecap. Break, they do obviously. make the putt putt, you mean. Yeah. You know, like, do you know the putt putt man? As the classic song says. Okay. Firewood. Yeah. One thing I thought was interesting about this movie, and I'd remember this about it, how quickly uh, all this happens when they get there. It's like they're barely there, and already they're over there. Like you know, other movies would like play it a little longer off, you know, and maybe shorten the amount of time that the actual stuff in the movie right. happens. In fact, another movie, and I'm not even saying this is the wrong impulse on Haneke's part, would have, like, tried to do more to make these characters feel like give them these more distinct personalities yeah but again I think he sees this more as an essay of a sorts where it's like eh, it's just man woman child like you don't need to know any particularly memorable details about them as people it's just yeah. stand-ins for any conventional little family you know Another thing that's really annoying too, it's being annoying, is that they're acting like, "Oh, you're the ones imposing on us." Right. It's yeah. Like, you know. No, not the little old me, like... <laughs>
So you said this dad and the main guy here were in the Benny's video. Yeah, yeah. they're like father and son. Yeah. Yeah, he started it. And the whole deal. But yeah, interestingly, in the uh, in Benny's video, the mother's a little bit more of a character than the father is. Um, yeah, but. I think it's an interesting whole dynamic of as annoyed in many ways as we are with these two characters, but that like the whole catalyst for the rest of the movie is their being here in the first place. Right, and so yeah. it's a weird tension that the movie's working with of us being annoyed in some ways that the plot of the movie is beginning to unfold because of what we inherently know this is going to entail for right. some sense. So it's a strange dramatic tension. Why not? Is that what he said? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Sir, 
about the dumbest game I've ever heard. Like, what's their whole deal? Were they just like caddies that just push came to shove that went too far and they just yeah, had to, you know? know yeah. Did you put it there? I don't know. But these characters are kind of interesting in the sense that they feel as if they do not exist yeah. in reality itself. Like they are characterizations of themselves. Right. Like, yeah. You know. That's a good point. Where the movie itself and I personally don't care where they came from because yeah. the movie doesn't know where they came from either yeah. because they don't exist really. Yeah. You know. Because the movie knows it's a movie. So. Now they're like, guess where the dog's at? Mm-hmm. Another dramatic tension is as annoying as the dogs bark were earlier, not hearing them anymore. Yeah. Communicates to us what likely happened to the dog and what we'll see happen. Yeah. I guess that's the first acknowledgement of breaking yeah. the fourth wall, so to speak. But yeah, I remember when that happened, I was like, "What?" Yeah. Because I was like, "What is this? Like Animal House? Like that one moment where he does it in that?" Yeah. Like, but that would seem more normal because. You know, that's a comedy. This is like a, you know, horror thriller. Yeah. Like, you know. Good double feature, I would imagine. Or interesting double feature. That one. Like, when I'd want to be this. hanging out more with the characters on that movie than the ones in this, that's a problem. Yeah. Why don't you get it, you know? Yeah, I said, like, he's, like, trying to be the rational mind in the situation and be like, I guess we'll do whatever they want until we can get this situation figured out. Right. And it's like, well.
I wouldn't presume to wonder what you're thinking, but yeah, yeah. who the heck knows? <laughs> I, mean, I need to get back to reading some uh, Bray Easton Ellis, you know. Yeah. And it's one of those things I remember when I was first watching this, it puts you in this whole dilemma of would you, if you were in her shoes, would you say anything to these people? Because clearly this, these people outnumber that one guy there. Yeah. But then what would happen to your wife and son and or husband and son? And yeah. Elsewhere, you know. Plus they would be like, what? What are you talking about anyway? And probably wouldn't get with the program quick enough. So, yeah. And he's already planning. Oh, that's where we'll go next. Like, yeah. As clearly as they're being aggressive in their own way, but another disquieting thing about them is how calm and yeah, uh, like oh maybe you should do this yeah. to help him. Like oh we can look at it and yeah, it's just clearly disingenuous. But yeah.
seem more annoying. They take every single little like turn of phrase and like, oh, but what? What about this? Yeah. What about that? Like. I don't know why they keep going Peter Tom what that with yeah. that like It's a random thing to say right now, but this is a good-looking transfer. Yeah, it is. <laughs> Trying to think of something yeah. to say. You know, it was like, well, uh, for a movie that kind of looks monochromatic anyway, you know. Yeah. Well, this is very interesting lighting, even in this particular scene, is yeah. that it's like late afternoon... No real illumination in the house, and so yeah, would natural. Yeah, that would be really hard to light that. Like. like they care yeah. you know I could care less it's almost it made me think of what if I use a similar idea of conception of a movie but that the two intruders or perpetrators were like much more combative with one another and had differing yeah. philosophies or ideas about yeah. how they should do what they're doing and it's honestly more of a dialogue between them and and then by the end you realize it's all performance art on their part just to be part of the yeah piece so to speak for them but Basically, society made him what he is, you know?
and kind of to that point that's what a lot of the just 90s postmodernism was in some ways was oh we got all these privileges yeah. and all this but yet we're still miserable Speaking of Tony Soprano earlier, that was a version of him. Yep. But, I mean, if you had that mother, you know. Was... Yeah. It's such a stupid thing to say because it's like, well, you get to decide that or not. Yeah. So what do you mean bet? Like, yeah. Again, there are decent instances of it, but in general, breaking the fourth wall like that to me is very juvenile, infantile yeah. impulse. Something that all the made worse by in recent years like Deadpool you know yeah. there's a lot of people of the idiotic sort which is most people think that's so cool and clever oh my gosh yeah. breaking the fourth wall like you break down a wall the whole house might fall down mm-hmm. so where do they say that <laughs> not no shows we watch <laughs> yeah. over here I don't remember Steve Harvey saying that. Or what Steve Harvey thinks of this movie. Funny games. His reactions sometimes yeah, are just like clearly, so over the top, yeah. like.
he uses a lot of close-ups yeah i've noticed especially too but he does in other stuff to mm-hmm. his other movies but those are often more on the uh on the objects though yeah. rather than in this case they're on faces but yeah Family game. I don't see how that works. Family game night. Yeah. It's that that talk show, or that talk show was a game show that was on yeah. for a while. Well, it's also just a concept. Well, yeah. I, I know uh, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. but I mean, this specifically. <laughs> yeah. I think so. Yeah. Jane Lynch hosted it, I think. Not our family game nights, but. Deep down, every time I see her, I know a lot of people think of Glee and all these other things. Still, first time I remember seeing her was in Walt Card, the Dewey Clock store. She's like a woman interviewing him in yeah. his late 70s. Period. His I'm going to cover Starman, period. Yeah. moral decency is, a, is what they care about you know course we should mention that uh a lot of people walked out of this at can i think yeah yeah i don't know at what points but probably various points yeah i would imagine even when it made itself to the art house and repertories here that happened yeah You used to see that happen at film school a lot with certain movies. Oh, yeah. I mean, that was even just 20-year-olds. I mean, you know. And uh, there's also been handfuls of movies over the years I've seen people walk out on. uh, That I could tell was not just purely I'm going to the bathroom and coming back. Right. You could tell in the moment they're leaving for good. I remember uh, Wolf of Wall Street. 
there was an elderly couple that yeah. slowly got up and walked out towards the beginning of that movie. Mm-hmm. Immediately. Yeah. I'll say it involved uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, a prostitute, and cocaine. Uh, yeah. Again, I might have mentioned this on the podcast before, but I remember seeing Mother here in Hickory and audibly people out loud by the I don't remember people walking out but at the end of the movie going this is the worst thing I've ever seen I want my money yeah. back like every you know well, we said it you know weeks ago but that uh, that was kind of the case with the Green Knight you know people like yeah. they weren't on that level exactly but yeah. they were doing the whole that's it and you know yeah And I was like, "That's one yeah. of the funniest impulses of me to leave a movie." That's it, like yes. Manchester by the Sea. I know people were kind of unhappy about that. I remember. And that was one that I was kind of totally shocked by because I totally loved that. And yeah, then I was like, "Oh wait, what? People didn't like this." Yeah. And again, that's one of the stranger ones out of all these because that does not involve yeah. any like no. violence really or any kind of shocking real things right. in it. I mean, but. Yeah, we talked about this already, but that it's interesting, of course, that he chooses not to uh, film it from, you know, to reveal her, like, yeah. you know, and that. Again, as you said earlier, all, all these close ups is really. Yeah. Most of the focus is on. Yeah. not really noticed until now this movie lacks kind of a score or discernible one yeah. anyways there might be a subtle one here and there other than the uh screaming yeah, music. music at the beginning uh, yeah yeah but, yeah but yeah there's not really any score i don't think because at the beginning it showed the music and then it was like listed the different composers so. for a long time I used to watch specifically No Country for Old Men, and I never noticed the score for a long time. Yeah, that's... And then, over the years, having seen it a bunch of times, I can hear it very... It's very brief and, you know, used in certain ways where there's certain scenes where you're not thinking about that, so it's easy to forget, like the uh, uh, coin toss scene in the... uh, gas station like that I've no you know there's some there and it's such a tense scene you don't really think about there being score you know yeah but. yeah 
I remember when I was first watching this, I was like, come on, kid, get out. Like, yeah. Movies like this and any other horror movie, uh, or any movie ever, or life in general, yeah. make me think I would never want a house that's really far out somewhere yeah. by itself. Yeah. Like, I just, for a lot of reasons, but one of them being people can come and do things like this and nobody can, is there to help, so. Yeah. because this is a movie. As you said earlier, he's the kid's making his way to the other house. Something that I've noticed, uh, kind of looking at the background of some of these shots, as you can see there's like a little town or city over there somewhere, yeah. like across the water. But, but yeah. If only they could there. get there, man. Yeah. It's almost dangling that over to our heads yeah. like a torture device itself. stage a home alone situation real quick yeah it's very unpleasant for me you notice how bland this room looks, like there's nothing on the wall. Yeah. I don't know how that could be true, but...
speaking of music earlier, I have seen the trailer I remember for the uh, newer or the remake, and it, that famously in the trailer uses all the Mountain King music in that. I don't know if it's really okay. a good movie, but. Think so. We should say also, by the way, I don't think we said this earlier. That this is both just our second time seeing this. So yeah. You know how a lot of people are talking about mind-bending movies. Yeah. It's like you gotta watch it more than once or whatever to get it. And this is not to say the movie's not sophisticated, because I think it is. But this is a movie you can watch the first time. Oh, I get exactly what's yeah. being said here, essentially. I mean, yeah. you know, there's not... Again, it's not a plot-heavy movie. Yeah. Because that can sometimes be the trouble with some movies, is actually understanding the plot and what's going yeah. on, you know. But that's not at all an issue with this. But So they uh, killed that little girl, obviously. Mm-hmm. They killed the whole family, but... their stuff a choice I guess yeah <laughs> you can only laugh I, I mean, mean it's just garbage yeah I mean I don't know this is literally like industrial noise after a certain point No bullets, as you know. Yeah. Really annoying moment. One thing I remember is he likes to choose his uh, footage very particularly, as you would guess, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, in the Seventh Continent, towards the end of that, one of the last things on TV before they die in that is uh, meatloaf. 
randomly singing and it's like okay like yeah, your last moments on earth are meatloaf you know? meatloaf meatloaf double beatloaf I'll bring Beavis yeah, and gonna, Butthead gonna into it. Yeah, going to blame Mike Judge. Version any mini money mo. As we said earlier, some of the you know biggest acts of violence occur yeah. off screen, and we don't even really see them. Such as that. Somebody has said in one of the reviews that might have been uh, Bill Jabiri that it's almost worse to have seen, uh, you know, him making a sandwich rather than the actual yeah. act, like, you know. 
because that does for us as an audience create a certain remove not all that dissimilar from these characters uh, yeah. in terms of they feel uh, oh it ain't that big a deal was you know yeah Was just the take that's like yeah. pretty long, yeah. Um, intention too, you know, that they had said, "Oh, we're gonna leave," and then of course they're gonna come back, but yeah, they would have lied about it. As if they're trustworthy, but you know. yeah. I just now noticed that the husband's on the left side of the frame; his legs are hanging out. It almost looks like. He could have been shot too. Right. He wasn't. Yeah. Because the son's clearly dead, but. She's looking to spare us too. Uh, yeah. Turn that TV off. That's probably the first thing I guess I would do. I don't know. No clue what I would do in a situation like this, but. Yeah. And I wonder too, as an audience at this point, like, what's our best case scenario? Because is it yeah. just the survival of these two people now? Uh, because feel it will naturally feel incomplete with the right. child being dead yeah. now. Because I feel like he's the one that naturally most audiences would most want to see get right. out because he's the youngest, but yeah. most innocent, you know. But yeah. But it does, especially the first time you see this moment create this numbing quality that the characters themselves are immersed in where you're yeah. like what's true north what do we want what's the next yeah. step I mean right. this big natural new reality sets in
imagine at this point they don't you know not even a space to grieve their son's death they're right. just about we just got to survive whatever is going to present itself yeah This is one of the most strangely lit shots in any movie I've ever seen because yeah. it looks like uh, a painting almost. Yeah. The primary source light is that lamp turned right. on its side. Yeah. But there's also clearly a light coming from the hallway right. too. Yeah. You already know this, but how long it takes to light. That's the longest oh, thing yeah, in filmmaking. Oh, yeah, that's the single biggest thing. The lighting. Yeah. Yeah, because the light has to be captured. That's yeah. what film is, is capturing light. So That's why uh, most actors spend a lot of time, downtime, they call it, or in their trailers or whatever, because they're literally waiting for the setup. Yeah. Like, and the grips are running around trying to get all that done. Those are really oftentimes some of the most hard-working people in yep. show business and grips who have to help set the lights up and light it. Because the little experience I had making short films in college, that was the single most aggravating yeah. aspect of the whole thing. Other than, you know, as a producer, coordinating with places, oh, yeah, good, 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 day before. Uh, yeah. Actually, we got something going on that day. You can't be there. Yeah. I wonder, too, if one of the reasons Han- uh, Hanukkah has sidelined the man is because, oh, we think the man should be the one really leading and doing things, and what happens right. when, well, he's hurt, and the woman yeah. has to take more charge. It kind of upsets our gender expectations of a movie like this. Uh-huh. This is the whole. Well, this whole movie's this way, as you can tell already. But this it seems like it's just hard to talk about because it's like, what's there to even say? Because yeah, no, no, it's just yeah. like you know, death of their son. What, what you know? Yeah. Sense of grief and loss and tragedy. Of that. Well, that's what I appreciate about a shot like this is it. It just shows what it is, and yeah. it's like actually pretty. He knows he doesn't have to do humanistic else. Yeah. in the sense. I mean, he put. I mean, it's strange. Because obviously this movie has so many, so much technical, so many technical aspects to it, but that a lot of the work is from the actors. I yeah. mean, you know, because that's where it all has to, yeah, go to. 
And I wonder if he ever thought about giving them two children. Yeah. Or if the loss of one was just, or the presence and loss of one was enough. So he just said, well, that simplifies it maybe. Yeah. A lot of physicality in his performance in this yeah. movie anyways. Yeah, they've got the two hardest jobs in the movie because yeah. he has to play her from the beginning, yeah. more or less, and then she's just got all this emotional... Yeah. You know, both of them do, obviously, but... How long do you think this shot's been going on? Almost like 10 minutes? Mm, yeah, I don't know. Should have been watching the time, but... Locked it from the inside out. There's so many doors in the world that lock the wrong way. Yeah. I just don't get it. It's like most of the movies, like a lot of movies like this, do this. Mm-hmm. And I have to think only in horror movies do doors lock the opposite way. Yeah. Like I said, it's realistic for this day. Yeah. But if you did it now, like the fact that one character only having a cell phone. Yeah.
That's a reminder of how quickly all this started to happen. Yeah, you know? that's true. I would say 911, but I don't know what their number no. for that is. I looked recently because some of my students were asking when 911 first was a thing or something like yeah. that, and it was the 1960s, I think, or 70s. Mm -hmm. I wonder what it was before then, if it was just localized police lines. Yeah, or... I think it was smaller. Take the otter box off. Yeah. Love the sense of hope we got earlier. They make him get it out. Just slowly slips by moment to moment. The more yeah. the longer they're taking to do anything. something I was thinking earlier is I don't think we ever get to see the upstairs of this house. Yeah. 
guess the closest we saw was when the boy climbed up out the window. Yeah. But, yeah, that's... Yeah. And I believe, I'm pretty sure, that the uh, remake was filmed in the same house. Oh, really? Which, I know that in the, in the trailer it looks similar, at least my memory which of Which makes it even weirder to think, okay, why didn't you make it in America if you want... You know, it just doesn't... Yeah. That just seems like even more of a useless venture to make. Yeah. You know, I, I don't know. But. I guess, again, I wonder if he just thought that a marginal amount of more people seeing it would have yeah. mattered or, like, you know, connected more. I don't know. Yeah, or that... Uh, Which is sadly probably true that more yeah. marginally more people Or he saw may it. have also wanted to just do it as an experiment, too. Yeah, I that's don't true, know. That's yeah. probably part of it, is yeah. just see if he could do it again, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Neither one of us have uh, still seen the Gus Van Sant version of Psycho. No. It's very famously a shot for shot remake. Norman Bates, played by Vince Vaughn. That's a shocking development. <laughs> I actually think that's kind of shrewd, yeah. but I don't know. I, you know. And then Drew Barrymore, I guess that just makes sense. But That is who's in that, right? Uh, I think. Or is that Drew Barrymore or somebody uh, else? I think somebody else played the uh, uh, lead. Let me see. Oh, okay. That's who my mind jumped to for some reason. 98 was when that. Yeah. Let's see. Drew Barrymore is famously in screen. Right. Maybe that's kind of why I was thinking that. Uh, Marion Crane's played by Ann Hitch. Oh, name. okay. You want to know who Arbogast is? I've heard, but mm, go ahead. William H. Macy. What? I didn't know that. Viggo Mortensen is Sam Loomis. Julianne Moore is Leela Crane, who's Marion's sister. This is Phil Baker Hall, Sheriff Al Chambers. Robert Forster is Dr. Simon Richmond, psychiatrist. I guess he gives the uh, whole explanation at the end. Then can't think of many better actors to do that than Robert Forster. But yeah, you said Ann Hatch was the woman's name. Yeah. It's like at least it's not Cesar Romero as Hetchy. <laughs> as Hetchy. Do. Sorry, we gotta laugh about something here. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, it's... that fence. I swear. We're not gonna be like a uh, you know Gonzo at uh towards the end of. Muppet Christmas goes like you're on your own, folks. Like no, see at the yeah. curtain, or Sorry, like, see yeah, at or... the end, or whatever it says. Like, yeah. <laughs> a Muppets funny games. Don't we do like a shot for shot remake Muppet style? Wow. Who would be who? I wonder. Well, again, the natural assumption is, I think, Kermit would be him. I'm guessing Kermit, Miss Piggy. Yeah. Statler and Waldorf as the perpetrator. Well, them or thinking again about uh, Gonzo and Rizzo. Oh, busy, right. Know. Yeah. Yeah. And then Animals the Dog. You know. 
I don't know who the boy is. Uh, Pepe the King Prom, yeah. maybe, I guess. Or yeah, yeah. Mickey Mouse sticker on there. I don't know if it's still active. There was a while there was a Pepe the King Prom uh, Twitter oh, God. page that was very yeah. active. <laughs> Imagine that's all that you could do in this situation. Yeah. Almost charming to see the like ninety cell phones in movies. Yeah. Now what they do? They made phone calls. That's what they really should be all about. You know? Battery dead. These people can't get a break, I'm telling you. Yeah. It's almost like the whole movie's set against them. Yeah. I wonder if two Haneke's, uh, I keep saying Haneke, Hanukkah's, like, big, also another statement he's making is that movies of this sort are nothing more than death, predetermined death traps for yeah. its characters, you know. And that, you know. Only the only escapes that are ever made are predetermined by the filmmaker. Yeah. But what happens when none of those escapes are there, you know? Right.
She took the risk thinking, oh, maybe it's them. Yeah. I wonder if Hanukkah was like, I want to drive the car. Yeah. Just like, okay. It was the audience driving the car. Mm -hmm. Like, no. The audience was complicit in passing her by. No, I think we very much want her to live, but. Kyle's stomach just grumbled if you heard that. It was weird it was at that moment, but... Most annoying image of all time. Yeah. Well, it's even more aggravating about the section of the movie we just finished is that you know they're going to come back. Yeah. But even when you first watch it. But it's like almost blissful that they're not in it. Yeah. And it's like, but at the same time, you know that they're, it's like, that's yeah. going to end the way it's going to end.
has a certain crazy family and wants said on TikTok. What does what does that even mean? Yeah. <laughs> Those people. That's another thing too. You got to think about is just the pure exhaustion being up as long yeah. as they have to. Another, another, yeah, another thing. Don't involve me in this. Yeah. Actually, we are up to feature length, but yeah. by so the a, way. So he's a liar. liar. One of his worst qualities. Yeah. I got a list I can yeah. go through. What's weird to me also about the remake is that it has Tim Roth and Naomi, Naomi Watts, two of our greatest actors. Yeah. And I'm not that interested in seeing it, really. I'm just, and I, you know, I will at some point. And but, Michael Pitt. Another yeah, one of our greatest really. Not really. Yeah. <laughs> Both on the return. Not judging her. Oh, what a sinner she is. She doesn't know a prayer. It's yeah. like, maybe you should have prayed a few more your whole life.
Again, I just want to emphasize these games are not so funny. So again, one's dead, but wait. You know, break that fourth wall. Back a good amount further than it needs yeah. to. Just so we can be more annoyed. Yeah. I know I had heard about that conceit before I had seen yeah. the movie, so uh, the shock of that, unfortunately, was not. I, didn't, I don't me. think I knew that about it. You got this is annoying. He's like, oh, you got this wet with blood. Like, mm -hmm. come on. And that knife earlier was, you know, kind of set up as a Chekhov's gun of like, oh, yeah. it dropped it there in the boat. Maybe that could be of use to her now, which we saw, right. but no.
Scooby Doo and Sapper Chase. No, it is just a movie. It's not real. Yeah. So, no. So, again, trying to make us feel it's bad for having nope. participated in you this. You lose. Because <laughs> I was just about to say a minute ago that the only thing that makes me feel better about these characters is knowing that they're not real. Mm -hmm. You know? So. Not that people like them aren't, but. Right. But these two particular. Yeah. Movies. I mean, I know we're dealing with homicidal maniacs, but even they don't need a break, you know, just like yeah. after having done all this. I remember when I first saw this, this is how it ends. Yeah. I'm just like, really? Okay. Oh, yes. Yeah, stare at it. Like. Well, we got through that one. Yeah. And again, it's so strange because I do find this to be a sophisticated movie, but also very juvenile in some of its yeah. Uh, yeah. tendencies and ideas at the same time. It's strange. That's a lot of European art cinema for you. Yeah, because, I mean, there is a lot of European art cinema that is really great yeah, of course, and yeah. emotionally involving and emotionally graceful, but uh, not all of it. And, you know, it doesn't ha all have to be either, but... It's like stare into the void. But it's one of those things like I think for what it is, it's kind of perfect. It's very, yeah. you know what I mean? Like in terms yeah. of it's very clear what his ideas are that he's trying to feed into this. Um after having seen it a second time, any new thoughts, ideas, feelings from it? By the it way, real quickly, the yeah. garter robe. That is what they used to call toilets in medieval times so i don't know what that means in this sense uh I, I like it i mean yeah it's not uh the most exciting movie hopefully you got something out of our commentary it's a hard movie to uh do that for i think so. out of all of our uh october movies by far the most challenging movie i yeah. think in a lot of ways yeah uh, 
surprising even with next week's too, but uh, yeah. that that will be the case. But I'll go ahead and pause this. Yeah. It's but again, um, I've, this is the only Hanukkah movie I've seen. I do want to see more, especially some of the descriptions and thoughts you had about some of the other ones. Yeah, he's uh, made better movies. I'd say, actually, other than, I think, it's strange. I think this is a little better than Benny's video, uh, and I like it a little better, but I think that The Seventh Continent, and particularly 71 Fragments of a Chronology of Chance, is better right but, um yeah i mean i think it's an important movie uh that if nothing else gets you to think about a lot of these things i mean there's other art that does that um yeah but i feel like this is the most effective in in that that i've seen sure uh even though a movie like scream is better but i don't think that's the in you know a special intent of that no. movie yeah. is to do that either because it also wants to be a conventional movie, which is fine. Um, but and it's one of those things like you know, this didn't spawn some sort of like franchise. Uh, no, and seeing these characters go to other places uh, that would have been commit. almost unbearable. Yeah, to I see think he, more. Yeah, like, I'm very even surprised he would even want to go through the experience of making this again. So I don't yeah. imagine making a movie like this is very tough and difficult uh, as far as the emotionally and the desire to do that again. Uh, I might say as much about him as it does anybody else. Yeah, again, yeah, right. I, I like to emphasize. Um, yeah. But again, as much as I, I'm not a fan of this movie exactly, I, I do find it to be compelling and intriguing, if nothing else, in what it is trying to say. And what in the world it is reflecting. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, like I said earlier, it's like, all right, well, if you don't like these kind of movies or take issue with them, why don't you go off and do something else as opposed yeah. to only... Uh, solidifying it and in a weird way giving it even more of a voice by even doing yeah, something like this right. and making it more of an issue than you even yeah. maybe intend it to be yeah. but whatever any other thoughts oh, ideas not really okay <laughs> so we're gonna go yeah. over the more uh, upbeat yeah. choice next well, week yes yeah with the Texas Chainsaw <laughs> Massacre from 1974 uh, yeah uh, groundbreaking movie in a variety of ways Seven, you know, the seventies was a great era for Hollywood cinema yeah. in a variety mm-hmm. of ways, particularly for horror cinema. I yeah. think, uh, and obviously directed by Toby Hooper. Mm-hmm. What about Texas Chainsaw Massacre? Uh, continues all these years later to shock or uh, enliven you in terms of as a film goer, uh, especially in relation well, to horror. I in won't mince words or be. It sounds hyperbolic. I think it's one of the best horror movies ever made. It's one of my favorites. Uh, I think what I like so much about it, first of all, is the uh, what I think that a lot of people do get out of horror movies is the adrenaline rush that you get from them, and I find that to be the most uh, effective, I guess, in that sense for me. Of that, I think the chase scene in that movie, about two thirds of the way through, I guess, is the best in any movie I've ever seen. It's so gripping. Um, and it's just a very uh, gripping movie in a lot of ways that I don't find scary, but I find to be very disturbing and uh, uh, obviously everybody talks about the themes of the movie as well, and I find that to be very interesting as uh, far as it being about you know uh, vegetarianism, capitalism, the Vietnam War, 
uh, blue collar working and you know all, all those things. I think it really more than anything though establishes a setting um, that is ripe for horror, uh, you know, filmmaking and obviously a lot of the you know a good bit of the movie is at night in the dark. Um, but there's a good portion of the movie before that, though, that's in the daylight. Um, and, yeah. You know, not when they're running around outside, but some things that happen that are in well-lit interiors uh, and exteriors. So, uh, but just in general, I mean, that's a, you know, there's been slasher movies before that, sort of, and versions of that. Peeping Tom is one that a lot of people point to, the Michael Powell film, but it's interesting that that and... Uh, uh, as in Texas Chainsaw and Black Christmas came out within I think two weeks of each other. Yeah, that is wild. Um, and that those are and I like that quite a bit. I think you like that too. Yeah, right? yeah, because we yeah. watched that back around Christmas. I've seen that some, and that is a very disturb. That's one of the most disturbing movies I've ever seen. And yeah, it's, I, it's got a very memorable yeah. haunting ending. Yeah. yeah, and it's really good. But um, they kind of came out around the same time and were doing sort of the same things. Texas Chainsaw uh, got way more yeah, notoriety. Well, it was as an audience, it was made I in America. To, yeah. and Black Christmas was from, from Canada. Canada. Yeah, from Canadi- Bob, from, Canada. Yes, Canada. <laughs> from Bob Clark of all people, uh, randomly. Uh, yeah, because it's but, almost a meme now among films circles of like the same guy made Black Christmas yeah, and a Christmas right. story. You yeah, know, and uh, way more seen, and they don't show yeah. that. They don't show uh, Black Christmas twenty four hours no. on TBS. Very funny. Um, that's what it still is in my heart, yeah. TBS. Um, but, uh, yeah, and, you know, obviously Halloween would come along, you know, only about three years after that. and uh, Oh, no, four, uh, four years. Sorry. Let me get my, day, my years mixed up. Uh, and then even in the 80s, you know, you had the... the slasher movies. Fly, were, Friday the 13th yeah. and uh, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street and more sequels for all those. Right. Uh, but what I think really does work, like I said, about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is that sense of adrenaline. It's very brief. Uh, and uh, also, this I think it really applies, and I don't think I mentioned this, the uh, Manson murders yeah. um, being very similar to that and uh, this uh, kind of forgotten and forsaken part of the country uh, that was being that was being made into movies like, you know, the... Uh, uh, hick exploitation movies yeah. like Deliverance or White Lightning or yeah. Smoking the Bandit. In you a know, more a lot like of those uh, actiony context. Right. And yeah. So there were various versions of that, but I think Deliverance that, is a uh, sort of horror movie, I guess. Too. Yeah, uh, it is yeah. a thriller. Yeah. yeah, sure. And uh, but these a lot of these other movies were this these other versions of that. But I think there's a certain uh, desolation, uh, yeah. literal, moral, emotional of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre that somehow keeps me coming back to it in which is weird for a movie that uh morose and frightening and disturbing and, a, and, and in a way like a uh, you know one of our uh i don't know if he's our favorite people but a guy that we like and respect a lot rob zombie something like yeah. house of a thousand corpses mm-hmm. is coasting off that same idea of these yeah. like forgotten parts of america that are now getting this like second look and do we want to get a second look at some right. of these places you yeah. know and because what's underneath it you know uh it should be said it spawned a franchise we've not really yeah. seen any of the other movies other than the early 2000s remake i have yeah. seen i haven't and seen like fine enough yeah but the second one in particular came out with the 80s i think that kind of has a cult yeah. reputation as being 
fairly interesting yeah. and good. We've not, yeah. excuse me, seen that, but we're aware about that. But do you um, have any thoughts about the first movie in general? Um, no, just that um, I've not seen it as many times as you have, but it always has been a movie that's left us certainly an impression, and is um, there's a reason why it's still one of those iconic core movies. Is that it's another one like this movie in a way that doesn't have a lot of gore but tricks you yeah. into thinking there's more right. gore in it than there yeah. really is which I always applaud a movie that withholds like that but still feels that intense yeah. and you know a movie that also has kind of a you know to the counterpoint to this an unambiguously triumphant ending of sorts yeah. uh, as far as the characters and more from that, uh, you know. coded social messages that I think in the long run are actually more important strangely uh, than this in the sense that they actually deal with you know I don't want to say that violence in movies isn't a problem it obviously is and so or something that should be discussed but you know you're saying that's but, maybe too uh, sometimes abstract to reach yeah, a wide audience but, but, but then something that, like yes, Texas Chainsaw that's is about more class and, and, yeah. cult, and culture and uh, you know abandoned like you know social abandonment yeah. uh, that uh, I think happens affects far more people in the world yeah. than movies do. Sure, frankly, so uh, and that it's far more expressly political, uh, and in a time where that movie fits right in to like this movie does too. Uh, but I feel like that's a more interesting look because this movie, Funny Games, is more universal and that it can still apply now. Yeah. Uh. Which would make you think, oh, well, that would make it more interesting. Not really. I would be more interested in a movie that's more specific to a time. But it, that doesn't mean anything. But, yeah. you know. Right. Uh, see, I'm looking forward to that one. Right. Be, it's weird that that will be like a, whew, a palate cleanser because that movie. <laughs> and the is, one that's certainly yeah. after that even more so. Oh, think, definitely. Point, and yeah. even the one after that, yeah. too. We're, we're get, we put our hardest ones in the middle uh, yeah. for this time, this go-round. So. So that does it for this episode on Funny Games. Again, next week we'll be hitting up 1974's Texas Chainsaw Massacre. But before we end the show, we got to continue our tradition yeah. that we started last week. I'm glad we got uh, to this Drew's part of the podcast. Drew's uh, famous yeah. music, which yeah. we ended with a cut of uh, cut off of the London. new the track yeah. <laughs> last week, uh, Werewolves of London. Uh, and so just let's just briefly go over this again. Just in the event so, yes. uh, so if you didn't hear last week, yeah. there's this... Uh, this uh, company called Drew's Famous Party Music, where they basically make covers famous, of famous party so, or famous songs that you put on. They put on CDs for that party you music. just presumably right. put in the CD player and play at a party. Right. And so party this, we have this one that is uh, I can't remember the name of it now because I actually don't have it in here. But it's like a Halloween version of it. Yeah, and they have a bunch of different stuff on there. And last week we had Werewolves of London that we played and talked about that song. Um, and now we're going to talk about. King Tut. King Tut. <laughs> King uh, Tut. <laughs> which you had, was doing some research earlier. We thought yes. that was a song that Steve Martin was maybe parodying or right. like he had did, taken from somewhere yes, else. on SNL, but he actually wrote the song. Yeah, um, which we know him as a musician. Yes, Obviously, right. he plays the banjo, but like yeah. I didn't know that he literally created that song. I yeah. thought that was, so you know. So where do we even start with this song? Because I have so many well, things you know, to say about uh, it. Well, we, we were trying to think which song would even go with this movie, and this movie has nothing to do with the mummies or mummification right. or ancient Egypt or but whatever. We, decide. we gotta give but ourselves we just a gotta give a palate cleanser um 
I mean, some well, some of the lyrics. Let's just go through that. I mean, you know. I mean, people stand in line to see the boy king, king <laughs> to and just could have uh, won a Grammy buried in his jammies. Uh, Born in Arizona, moved to Babylonia. Moved to Babylonia. It had a condo made of stono. Right, like, King Tut. Those yeah. that rhyme. Uh, so my favorite kind of section of the song is the uh, the ladies love the style Boston. Like yeah. why they would have <laughs> that in there, and then Ada Crocodile and gave his life for tourism. But uh, it's just a hilarious song. I mean, our mom like really this loves movie, it yeah. because. She's a Steve Martin fan anyway, but she always will sing yeah. it together. It's a funny thing. It's really a funny song, so I hope that you get something out of it. But it's weird because, you know, they have things like novelty songs yeah. all the time. But what's weird, though, is that something like Werewolves of London, it, it's a weird song, but, but it doesn't feel like... I don't know, like, but it's trying to be a semi-serious rock song. Right. In terms of, like, a, yeah. just a song. And it's, Where, it's, yeah. in some ways it makes it more laughable, because right, it's like, because what are you talking like, about? This is clearly a joke yeah, song. Yeah, it's like... like uh, yeah, it's, it's clearly for a laugh. For, yeah. it's, it's from a comedian, not from somebody who's like, I make music for a living. Right. Uh, which, I mean, he I guess he He's produced does. albums. Yes, yeah. but, like, you know what I mean? He's, like, a comedian, but... Uh, you can also go find the video of him dancing to it on SNL, yeah. uh, which I don't know if I've ever seen. I've seen. Now that I think, in the past, I feel yeah. like I have at some point, but but yeah, of course we're putting the version that the Hit Crew. Yeah, did. No, that's the Hit uh, Crew's our crew, you know, like we right, but, a special uh, place in our hearts. Yeah, it's just I don't know. I mean, it's a weird song to describe. I mean, it's literally like taking King Tut. Yeah, and. I don't even know what it does with him. It just like goes all over the place, and it's like going tut tut, tut, then, tut, tut <laughs> then. Yeah, I mean, and it just puts all this nonsensical, very like nineteen seventies kind of like stuff uh, talking about Arizona and and yeah. the Grammys and yeah. Jammies and buried with a donkey, funky tut. I mean, yeah. he's my yeah. favorite hunky. I it's mean, just clearly meant to have fun. So we thought, what better way to end one of the most unpleasant funny movies games. you'll ever see? Yeah. I mean, with fun very is in pleasant funny songs, games. you know. Lord, all right, it's there been a go. long day. It has <laughs> been, <laughs> has been. So this is Kyle. This is Levi. And, and beware uh, of that King Tut. Out and there. I mean, God bless, Lord. Yeah. After this one, so yep. King Tut, take care. God bless. Never thought he'd see people stand in line to see the boy King. How'd you get so funky? Did you do the monkey? Born in Arizona, moved to Babylon. Now if I'd known they'd line up just to see him, I'd take up all my money and bought me a museum.